0: I have no idea where this will lead us but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange
1: and just to kind of clarify I really like interrogating Cooper's ideas that Twin Peaks was either an ideal place or at the very least Cooper Focused more on the positives. Mm-hmm. I like to critique that idea because I actually find the idea of Cooper being wrong about the town interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is a flaw in the show or a flaw in writing. I think it's a character flaw that makes him feel more believable. Yeah, I think that his enamored state about the town and how much he gets absorbed into it and the sort of flights of fancy he can enter into show a potential weakness in his in his personality mm-hmm. that I like. So to me, it makes him more nuanced that he would have that period where he tried to live in the town more, and that maybe he did underestimate the darkness that was there. Okay. Um, so I don't know about you, but I like that element. I just wish the show had maybe a little bit more acknowledged that Cooper was wrong. Mm-hmm. It feels like the show sometimes also indulges in that feeling that <laughs> Twin Peaks is a perfect community, mm-hmm. and it's not until The Secret Dyer and Fire Walk With Me that we just rip the plank off and find the gum underneath.
0: You gotta put your bitch somewhere else, slog lady. This is getting this slog is getting bad. lady. Did
1: you go to the slog lady?
0: I don't think, so, but I guess I'll, I'll go with it. Yeah, no, slog lady. <laughs>
1: okay, okay. <laughs> uh, Tina Rathburn, episode seventeen, director, said, "Quote: Laura's funeral scene was a really huge emotional well, whereas Leland's wake I felt was pretty incidental emotionally. So to me, the two of them aren't in the same realm. The death of Leland carries the same weight as Laura Palmer, yet her funeral was not played up for any humor." The old Mm. brother's fighting in the wake sticks out to me as strange, which is a precursor to a lot of the -the over-the-top humor. It feels like one of the moments where Twin Peaks changes. So although her tone's fairly neutral in this quote, I'm definitely getting a sense that she doesn't quite like that the script that perhaps she was given as the director did lean so much into the humor. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there's more she could have done. I'm assuming Tina is a a she here. I I don't know if there's more that Tina could have done to fight against that direction if she Mm. had that stance as a director. Um, if this was Michael Parks, John Renault, he would have <laughs> put his foot down, maybe. But I think it's a really interesting point because, yeah, you and I have also commented how the death of Leland was really weirdly handled because at the funeral, it's kind of treated with a lot of jokes and a lot of nonsense stuff. And then afterward, no one really talks about Leland being dead. And it's really unclear who in the town even knows that Leland was the killer. Yeah. I, I do think the mistakes were made. I really do think mistakes were made. I think you can retroactively make it work, though if you articulate somehow the idea, preferably in the fiction, not outside the fiction, that the town's failure to address Leland was almost them putting a bandaid over an open gashing wound. I almost think of it like they're suppressing the thoughts of it. They don't want to think about Leland anymore. We're going to move on.
0: I think that it's the difference between what Leland is to the community as versus with Laura Palmer, as well as the constant comment that we've made where Twin Peaks is an illusion of good. So, looking at the death of Laura Palmer, that was an outright tragedy. Laura Palmer has been involved in so many people's lives. She had been involved with efforts such as the Meals on Wheels program. Mm -hmm. Most I know about Leland, especially amongst his overall friends and everything, he was involved with some things that he probably kept very hidden and shady. May have been aloof and caused a little bit of joy for people, but no one outright has really interacted with Leland outside of his family as Mm -hmm. well as inside the office. I think that's it's still important for the community to gather together and still express that sense of, like, we're in this together, so having those little points of joy, I don't think is so dissonant uh, for how people handle Twin Peaks.
1: I take a middle road. I wouldn't want it to be treated equally as Laura's, but I do think that more sincerity would have made sense. Like, a little less of the hokey humor and a little bit more of realizing. But again, where I think I'm okay with is if the narrative would have treated it as less important and then everyone kind of just forgets about Leland, Mm -hmm. but then done something with that forgetting. Like thematically, there's this idea we mentioned before with like Ronette and Sarah Palmer, how (laughs) the town just forgets about the survivors. Like it doesn't care about them. The show just straight up drops Ronette and Sarah Palmer for episodes and episodes and episodes. So to me... If you look at it and you're willing to interrogate that sort of failure on the town's part, I think it's interesting. The problem is that I think it's not just a failure on the town's part. I think it's a failure on the show's part. I don't think the show was purposefully not doing anything with Sarah Palmer. I think they just kind of didn't know what to do and they just moved on from her, which I think was an oversight.
0: I would feel more about that probably if it wasn't for the Bobby Briggs speech at Laura Palmer's funeral in which the town's neglect still continues to live on. Season it's only, one, baby. Different it's, time. It's only after, like, someone has died in which, like, there's even some interaction yeah. with the idea, and it's only because of just this ideal of Laura Palmer, which I don't think anyone had an ideal of <laughs> Leland Palmer, uh, unless... No, no, I don't no. believe it.
1: He... I think he had garnered a lot of sympathy following Laura's death, though. Mm-hmm. In the months prior to Leland dying, I think he had the town had rallied behind him a little bit. I don't think it was overwhelming support, but I do think that even like the Haywards should have had more of a reaction out of this, you know? Like, (laughs) especially if not for Leland, for knowing that Leland had been the one to do this to Laura. Okay. We should have got a reaction out of a lot of people, but but we didn't.
0: (laughs) I think that I kind of enjoy the amount that we didn't get, mainly because it lingers into that question. Like how much does the town even know Yeah, or even is accepting? I I think it it
1: ends it if you end up enjoying it, it's a very murky kind of you accepting that the show didn't portray things as a quote unquote should right Mm. In in a in a normal situation. Yeah, people should be reacting and processing the sort of. Darkness that Leland was, but that's that's the fun. That's part. That's how it
0: should go. Twin Peaks is a dream. Twin Peaks is means of ideals, and when the ideal person goes away, of course, that's a tragedy, and we remember all those yeah. sort of good portions. But when someone who has done something inconceivably bad that gets swept away, because we need that image. And Twin Peaks has yet to be fully challenged, if you will, because I I don't even believe like after the incidents what happened with Miss Twin Peaks that that'll even be talked about that much. Mm-hmm. I, I believe We just, next ten- year,
1: we treat it as the 30th anniversary again? Yep. <laughs> it was 30th. It's, right? it's, it's, it was the 30th, I believe. Like, okay.
0: we're going into the 31st now, and we're just not going to talk we're about We're just going to go things. back to
1: 30 again. We just erase the 30th I don't think, think that, that there's going to
0: be further precautions. I think that, that maybe there may be, but even maybe is, like, emphasized with, like, a underline.
1: I would like, like to have believe a, like
0: someone make a comment, but no, I, I do not believe that this town sticks to like the tragedies that long.
1: Professor, hey, I would like to believe as an American that if our society ever had to face some sort of obstacle where we needed to band together and maybe we failed at band together, that <sighs> we would learn from it and take future precautions so it wouldn't happen again. I believe that as an American. hmm. Look, for the record, I've said nothing political on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm just stating my own beliefs you as an American stayed, yep. in the year 2021 Yep, about future precautions.
0: And as, a, as an American, I'm looking at you in a certain way <laughs> for hey, probably no particular You're looking reason.
1: at me the same way that Dick Tremaine and Andy Brennan looked at Little Nikki. Like I'm the devil. <laughs> Speaking of Little Nikki, Little Nikki Needleman's actor. Joshua Harris he was a fan of Twin Peaks because his older sister was a fan of Twin Peaks. He watched most of the episodes by the time he was on the show, even though he was 10. He was trying to figure who the killer was and everything, and he was excited to be able to audition for it. Notice oh. that Michael Parks, the guy who plays Jean Renault, didn't watch it. Little <laughs> Nicky's Little actor, Nicky the 10-year-old, did. watched it. Oh! Like, I love that. I it's, love It's interesting. Uh, again, generally would not recommend the show for 10-year-olds, especially no. the, the darker content that happens later. But, but, everyone's different. There are some very mature 10-year-olds who can mentally handle things that we might we don't underestimate them. But yeah. generally not a recommended for most.
0: <laughs> uh, we could see that I, as an adult in his mid to late 20s, could hardly <laughs> survive the film. you pacing after
1: Fire Walk with me, yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh, the actor who played Evelyn, Annette McCarthy, said, quote, It actually was a one-time kind of deal. I was supposed to do something naughty or tawdry on the show or something, and they just kept writing, and I was very pleased. Kissing James was like, actually, I have to tell you, it was the real deal. He gave me that kiss, and I went to Mars. I knew him for a little bit afterwards, and he's a very good man. I remember watching our episodes together. That's sweet. And then James Marshall, the actor behind James Hurley, said, quote, also, I just again we've never acknowledged it. I love the fact that James is played by James.
0: Yes. It, it I, I feels I do right enjoy for that. that character. It it does.
1: So James Marshall said, quote, at the time I expected Donna and James to continue their romance because I felt there was a lot left to explore there. James and Donna didn't need to get married, but they should have been together and worked through the pain to figure out everything that happened. Yes. Yes. Let's do something with the characters. I agree, James. To hold up a level of innocence in their characters. You know, the innocence that they have, the purity, you know? (laughs) But the writers felt different. So I was taken aback once the James and Evelyn story began and Donna went off trying to be this hoochie girl. As an actor, I focused on what was cool about the situation. It was a beautiful romance and sexy in a way with a younger guy and a bold woman. It was actually fun working with Annette, though. She was really cool. She was really fun and a really good actress, aside from being an incredible kisser.
0: I am glad that they both they had a both great time. enjoyed that
1: kiss. That's great. Those now, kisses again.
0: The Evelyn arc is the best thing to ever happen to James. It is, and you're gonna die on that hill. I'm gonna die, and here. many fans would kill you on that hill. I will die because <laughs> people are actively killing me. Yes, but no. As far as James goes, the, the we need to explore the character. We need to explore the flaws. I am sick and tired of hearing how sweet and kind and pure James is. Let's do something else other than brooding and driving, please. (laughs) So, no, I agree with you, James. I thoroughly agree with you. There's a little bit that I disagree with, but I thoroughly agree with you.
1: The things you agree with, you agree with thoroughly. The things you disagree with, you disagree with thoroughly. Yes. (laughs) It's a coffee and milk kind of situation. Yes.
0: How would James Hurley enjoy his coffee?
1: Injection. He would inject it straight into his vein.
0: I think it's... I think it'd be an old cup of coffee that he says that he's gonna drink, but it kind of sits around for a long freaking time until just finally he just sort of drinks it in the moment. I'm not and sure the James flavor gets is sort of faded. I'm
1: not sure James gets coffee. I feel like he would. Just take any coffee you hand him. He would drink it. I don't know if he understands flavor profiles.
0: So so you're the one who says he'll just drink it. I'm saying he just leaves it out until eventually gets it. I'm just saying he, he doesn't care it.
1: about his coffee. We both agree about that. Yes. Whether he ends up never drinking it, taking forever to drink it, or he'll just take what anyone ever gives him, he's not picky about his coffee.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, no, I,
1: we're good. Uh, moving on to other side characters, smaller time characters, uh, Denise Bryson. A little bit more on that one. Uh,
0: Denise Bryson playing...
1: That's the character Denise Bryson. Oh, the agent, (laughs) right? Oh, yes, played by David Duchovny.
0: Yes, okay, we're good.
1: Okay, been a long time since Denise was brought up, huh? Been a while. So Kimmy Robertson, the actor who plays Lucy, quote: "I would run into actors who were desperate to be on the show. One of them being David Duchovny, who went so far as to ask me out and date me. Basically, all the time we were dating and talking on the phone, I thought it was because he liked me. And it wasn't until this year, and the interview was done in 2013." that I realized he was just doing that to get on the show. I didn't know anyone had that amount of fortitude to put up with me for that long. How smart was he? It's amazing. I like how she's uh, Excuse she's taking me. the situation to be how fortitude, how good he is. It's like, he was using you to get on a show. Not only that. That's really not but good. But Lucy, like you're even saying like putting up with, are you okay? Yeah, that's sad. Uh-huh. Uh, Michael Horse, the actor who plays Hawk, said, I love David Duchovny. He just said, I love David It's to David Duchovny, just to clarify. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He was so funny. He came on as the transsexual. That's the word he used. And some of the crew guys were looking like they were a little uncomfortable. I was going, come on, he's playing a character. I had my picture taken with him in drag. I did an episode of X-Files and I was in the makeup truck. I said, yeah, I used to date David's sister. I showed them the picture, and they didn't really say anything. David came in, and they showed him the picture asking about his sister, and he said, that's me, you idiots.
0: That is a series of Series events. of things. It's an emotional roller coaster. It is.
1: Some good, some bad, some ugly.
0: I mean, that you're not wrong. The three halves.
1: <laughs> the three halves. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything about that one, or just let it be.
0: Yeah, I don't really think, I, I, I think that this, the quote speaks for itself. All
1: right, cool. Let's return to an old favorite then, Ben Horn. Oh, boy. So there's a scene in episode 18, if I did my notes correctly, where uh, Richard Boehmer said of that scene, quote, the scene was supposed to end when Hank came in. He says, Ben, you're out. Then he turns and leaves and that's it. I, I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe this is the scene where it's around the time that Ben was like looking at that old footage, Okay. of himself because it's like when hank shows up to kind of intimidate him this mm-hmm. is before the civil war era okay. but like not too far before okay so the scene was supposed to end when hank would say ben you're out it'd be cut but he didn't say cut so i kept repeating that and found myself walking to the desk throwing things sitting on the desk making shadows on the screen right it was all just him letting it roll Maybe he detected that I was in a particular mood that day. So he wanted to see what was going to happen. He could have left it on longer. I would have just kept doing stuff. For me, Dwayne was one of the finest directors in the show. That's referring to Dwayne Dunham. So I don't know, I just thought that was kind of a cute little story in the behind the scenes that Ben's temper tantrum in that moment after Hank... I kind of, but I like that moment because I remember how that felt. Where Hank had been like, "Ben, you're out," and then Hank just kind of like repeats that, grumbles it a bit, and then starts throwing stuff like a baby, like a temper tantrum. <laughs> I really like that. That was kept in. Agreed. I think that's it's really shows what Ben was willing to do when no one was looking. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> uh, Sarah Markowitz, the costume designer, or one of the costume designers, said Richard Bamer and I had an ongoing wager. Richard was convinced in television that rarely was an actor's feet shown. And in fact, he could wear bunny slippers and no one would ever know. So he wore off-camera shoes unless his feet were going to be seen. And the deal was neither he nor I could say anything to the director or the cameraman about putting his feet in a shot. Honestly, he's mostly right. I don't think he ever paid me. (laughs) Again, can you kind of see why I'd want like a behind the scenes of Richard Bamer? This is like a fun guy.
0: <laughs> Thoroughly. I, I just want to know how many people would go into work with bunny shoes if they had the chance. It doesn't seem like it was it was
1: off-camera shoes a lot. I don't think it was explicitly bunny all well, the time. I
0: imagine it's the bunny.
1: All about the bunny. Uh James Marshall. This is again referring to uh to Ben. This is an intersecting of one of our least favorite characters with one of my favorite characters. Yep. Do you like Ben a lot too?
0: Ben's a Ben is a good character. Not
1: one of your favorites. I
0: would need some time to think of he that. Might but he might be, but he not He may guarantee. very well be. I almost said he was a good guy, but that's a lie. That's
1: Well, maybe by the end, uh, depending on how you interpret him.
0: I'm still trying to interpret what happened with the fireplace.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so James Marshall said, quote, Every few weeks I would sing a different song from West Side Story to Richard Boehmer. In the hall. If I was walking behind him and he just hated it. So again, if you don't know, Richard Boehmer was famously like the star of West Side Story. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: And he hated he, it? Like
1: No, no, no. You got to realize this is James's actor constantly singing to you the songs from decades that you've performed in the hallway when you're just trying to be left alone. You see like, okay, I, I, I think I'd handle it a little bit
0: differently, but I can, I can kind of see it.
1: He didn't like it a lot, but once in a while I just had to, because as I was growing up, my parents played musicals nonstop on the stereo. He, Richard, would turn around really slowly and say, "'I check if James is working in the morning.'" and i brace myself for these moments <laughs> which i just thought was really cute
0: yes that 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 is pretty we adorable we all brace
1: ourselves whenever james appears on twin peaks
0: and thankfully hey uh i have not experienced west side story before but i will maybe have a chance in the theater i, I kind That's of, a
1: new one that's not the same thing i know it's
0: not the same not thing not a replacement honestly like i but the thing is is that it's not really replacement seeing like footage of it you kind of have to be there In order to get the full experience. Maybe that's just me with a bit of bias onto that. But like sitting amongst other people looking upon the stage for West Side Story.
1: Are you saying you wouldn't do like a film adaptation? Is that what you're saying?
0: Oh, no. I mean, like, did you mean like Ben was like on stage in a live performance? Oh, the movie. Well, then, no, I, and I guess I just
1: I, I don't know why I assumed you knew this. You said you like musicals, so I just I kind do of like assumed... musicals, so I assumed
0: that was yeah. like the live
1: action musical. No, no, no. Richard Bamer starred in the movie adaptation from the 60s of West Side Story. Well, now we have to watch both. And opposite of not opposite, but like one of the other main actors was the actor who played Jacoby. Okay. Those two are like really big deals in it. So, one <laughs> of the things that's kind of fun about Twin Peaks is it reunited those two cast members. <laughs> so, no, like uh, in addition to Sunset Boulevard. And we previously watched Wizard of Oz. I think West Side Story would be in the discussion for like a related movie. Okay. I'm also going to check out the noir film Laura next year probably. Because nope. that's, that's a relevant that's a relevant film as well.
0: <laughs> a film named Laura is relevant, you Yeah, say? there's some
1: plot details. Okay. I thought I mentioned it on pod once. Maybe I didn't. Who knows? But now it's here. Yeah. I think Look Back 1 I think I brought up Laura. Um, so last thing I have before we can go to some questions again is another production error. This one's from episode 19, and I don't want to give you any context. I just want to let this linger. If you want to do something with this, please. See, you know how very famously in Fire Walk with Me, Teresa Banks' chest rose as though she was not dead in the morgue? You know about that? Remember that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember.
1: I remember. Dougie Milford's corpse is seen blinking. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that. (laughs) That might be a problem. We never caught that, but uh, that's 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 really noticeable. If, if, I'm sure it's there. I believe the citation there. <laughs> yeah. That's from the Twin Peaks wiki. Mm-hmm. I never caught it. Now I'm going to be looking for it next time I watch episode 19.
0: Like, I just assume, like, the character, when they're dead, they can just, like, rest and, like, close their eyes and just, like, lay there. But no, that is... That is... That might be... What is worse when playing a dead body? I
1: Breathing would say blinking. the blinking. I honestly would. <laughs> so you know, if you whatever you want to do with that, whatever you want to do with that.
0: Yes. Now, as far as Dougie went, whether he is alive or dead, that truly was a powerful character journey. But thankfully,
1: mm.
0: thankfully, one of our listeners did uh, send us a nice question. Why do you keep coming
1: up with these questions? <laughs> Where, what, how are they sending these to you?
0: They are sending it to me. The most proper way into my own brain. Uh, so, thank you very much, Unplugged Professor, for sending us this next question. Which character journey did you enjoy the most? And character journey can mean all sorts of things. Mm. Like maybe you might think Cooper into Insanity, Leo into a lion, or Hank into Useless. <laughs> what?
1: It's my least favorite character journey.
0: <laughs> what is your favorite, though?
1: I have given you five and a half answers. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, my actual answer for if I had to pick one favorite is Ben Horn. Okay. I feel like that's not really that much of a surprise, mm-hmm. but I, I will explain briefly, I guess, why. I feel like he is a character that goes through a significant amount of change in the narrative. Okay. Uh, he's a very dynamic and layered character with conflicting motivations the whole way through, and he substantially changes mm-hmm. throughout. And I feel like those changes were a lot of times clearly dictated by his environment and a lot of his motivations while being unclear sometimes of his actual end goals, they make sense in like when you look back at them Mm -hmm. and I just think he's consistently entertaining and interesting. A lot of characters like will have overall strong moments, but then like fizzle for an arc. I enjoyed every arc of Ben Horn and he was a main character the entire show. There are a few Twin Peaks characters as constant as Ben Horn Mm -hmm. Uh, even Catherine wasn't there the whole time, Mm -hmm. but uh, I, I, I truly enjoyed him. I see, I know there's some people who don't like the civil war era as much for Ben, or maybe they don't like his carrot days, but I happen (laughs) to enjoy those as well. So for me, I would say Ben Horn as my legitimate answer. Okay. There are some runner ups though. Uh, Dale Cooper, second one. Um, I think that overall his character arc running in the background of the entire series is very strong. I think the devastating note that season two ends on with him feels like, such a powerful move against, I guess you would say, what people might hope for that character. It was a very bold choice, but I think it really, really worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that moment with Jean Reno about Cooper bringing in his own form of darkness really, it leaves a breadcrumb trail to follow that allows you to dig into his character in a lot of fun, interesting ways. And I just overall think he's a really fun character moment to moment. But even just in terms of the character journey, I think you see him go through different stages as well. Okay. Third and a similar note, Bobby Briggs. Again, dynamic changes throughout the show, uh, consistent presence. I do think Bobby, though, had some weaker elements. I think the moment where he's, like, with Audrey for a few episodes with the Ben Horn stuff, that didn't quite... (laughs) It wasn't quite as good. I don't think it was, like, outright bad, but I definitely think it was the weakest part for Bobby for me. But I do think he's one that is consistently improved by Firewalk with me. And... The diary, which I assume are part of this question. I assume those would also yeah. count. No, it include as much as you'd like. Um, that is kind of a cop-out answer, I admit. I put the Palmer family because I didn't know if I wanted to put Laura, Leland, and Sarah separately, <laughs> but all three of them. Laura's whole story isn't really much more revealed until the diary and Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. But I think it takes a character who is largely a background like plot mechanism and really makes her human. And also, like, incredibly complex. Okay. So, I mean, Laura's got more development than the vast majority of characters when you consider the book and movie. Yeah. Um. So, Laura's character journey, um, Leland, all the levels of even trying to figure out what is Leland, mm-hmm. what is Bob. I think that that's really compelling and interesting. Um, and then Sarah Palmer, similarly, a character who didn't get a lot of screen time, but the moments with her are very interesting. And, again, the journey she goes through kind of suffering quietly in the background. Okay. Uh, And then my last answer, um, just kind of rounding it out, uh, maybe an odd odd, oddball one, I don't know, uh, Harry Truman. Okay. Um, He's someone that when you do isolate his experiences, kind of for the same reasons you mentioned, why you think in the return he might not be in law enforcement anymore. He goes through a lot of stuff in this show. He does. And his attachments to Josie and Cooper and where those end up bringing him, it's that moment in the last episode where he's just waiting for Cooper to come back, and he's waiting there for, like, a full day, and Andy's just trying to ask if he wants some food, and you could just see how despondent Truman is, just how his mind is so much trying to find out how to help his friend, and just he's in this moment, this trance-like state.
0: Yeah, it, it was only thanks to, like a like, a thread of a moment that he even, like, joined back into the force yeah. after what happened to him. I think that we brought up before, like when there's points where Truman would even question Cooper, we were wondering, Oh, well, where is this a breaking point? No. Instead, Truman, when he reached his breaking point, Oh, did he break?
1: And, and the moment where he's at his darkest after Josie dies and he's kind of slipping into the alcohol sort of temper, violent sort of impulsiveness. Um, again, seeing that character who has been shown to be such a upstanding member of the cast morally and such a, Symbol of kind of order within the mm-hmm. society um, seeing the personal toll of Josie on him I think it brings a lot of reality to an otherwise very confusing character of Josie a very like when she was alive we didn't know whose side she was on when she was dead we didn't know what plane of existence she's in <laughs> if she's even dead or if she's a doorknob Yeah. so for me having Truman be kind of the representation of the real effects of her I don't know it's just interesting so yeah Ben Hor is my actual answer but I have a lot of runner ups very well what about you
0: I'm confident with my answer. Okay. But I don't know... I don't know if this is a cop-out or anything like that. My favorite character journey is a journey that ends up in the same place by the end. Okay. And that is maybe even a worse place. That's for Ed. Hmm. Okay. Between, like, Ed and Norma's overall romance, at the end of the day, when things are written down into its simplest bit of nature... Ed did a lot of morally questionable all the way to bad things in pursuit of the things that he wanted. hmm That's all the way back in high school, and that is up to the character that we see up to this point. But what I love about the story is the overall murkiness of every step of the way of the situation, all the way up to the end. Mm-hmm. And you'll end up looking at it. And even if I imagine, like, this is me possibly speaking out for multiple people. And I know that there are other people that may say no to this. And I respect, the, like, these. I'm ready to about say it. no to. But it, you look at it, and it's looking at this guy, and you feel bad. For literally him living a life that he does not want. And when he tries to reach out, it, there's nothing to really work out for mm-hmm. him. There's nothing to work out for Norma. I mean, the luckily Norma, it seems Hank is going away. Mm-hmm. It seems at the very least she'll have that bit of freedom. But the way that Norma describes Ed's and her relationship with other people. Yeah. And how they handle other people. Ed's not going to move away from it. Ed's not going to force anything out of it. He's going to sit by Nadine's side, sing sweetly to her. He's going to care. But I think that that's going to be the very pacifying, passive life he'll live. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think that he's one of the characters left the most unhappy at the end.
1: And that's your favorite character journey.
0: It's my favorite character journey because not only does it just kind of like feel so crushing at the end, the character kind of ended up with something that some may argue was kind of deserved and he's got to face the consequences but it does it's powerful enough to say things aren't so simple Mm -hmm. none of this is simple and i think that yeah that's why it's gonna stick out to me the most
1: yeah i respect that um Ed is not a character I've, especially over my repeated viewings, including this most recent one. He's not exactly a character I've been that attached to or that interested in. Um, I think I generally am on the lower end of appreciating Ed and Norma and their individual characters and relationships. Uh, As compared to most fans, I think I'm generally more on the lower side. Okay. But even then, as I say that, that's just a personal subjective thing. I don't have any concrete reasons that I would dislike Ed and Norma's characters or relationship in seasons one and two, I I think that the characters as they're presented, I I think what you've said about them and the the interest you have in them and the things that you see that are either emotionally or intellectually stirring or both, uh, they're valid, totally valid. So I I think that's a good choice. Mm. If you had said something like Little Nikki, I would have reached over this table and slapped you, and <laughs> it's I wouldn't a long have got. Table too. I wouldn't have got up. I would have. I recently watched the second. Space Jam movie? Yeah. You know, and spoilers for Space Jam 1 in 1997. Uh, but the end of Space Jam, Michael Jordan has to make that dunk, and his arms extend all the way across to make that dunk. Yep. My arms would have done that all the way across the table to strangle you. And it would have been just as victorious, and the Looney Tunes also would have been there for it.
0: If if there's a point in which, listener, I don't appear on the podcast, just assume Khalil grew arms.
1: For legal reasons, please don't assume this. <laughs> <laughs> all right hey you know what i got arms for trivia <laughs> i got all the arms for trivia
0: one moment was that both questions yeah favorite character journey who would have been a oh good i skipped
1: the i did the page thing <laughs> i'm going to <laughs> Never stretch mind. my
0: arms across the table so do you your- slap you <laughs> anyway i thank you for joining me on to the heavy subjects that accompany things such as the journey i think that it's Twin Peaks is very nice in the sense that you're not going to come out with happy interaction. So, on a lighter note, Mm -hmm. we know that Leland Palmer was the killer that Bob took to be his host. Right. Is there any other characters, if it was not Leland, you think would be a good killer? So, this is the lighter question, I know, but just to clarify. Yeah, I was going to ask. This does not mean, like, it can mean, like, you can explore, like, Bob or another parasitic creature attaches to another person, and they would be a killer. Mm -hmm. Or it's just for their own reasons, and it's taken serious into the narrative. Go into supernatural, go into less than natural. I just want you to tell me who would be, uh, I was going to say fascinating, and I will anyway, fascinating Killer option. You know, it's,
1: it's kind of strange for how much media I enjoy that does have, like, a killer aspect. Like, I'm a big fan of the video game series Danganronpa. Mm-hmm. I don't often speculate about characters becoming killers or murderers very often.
0: <laughs> so what you're saying is that Hufumi being the big bad...
1: <laughs> Not going to say anything for spoilers, but it's very funny <laughs> if you know. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, no, I, I generally don't think of it like that. And when I was looking over the cast again for this question... Um, I was going to depend on how you clarified your question. I was going to maybe go one way or the other. But when I was looking at the names of characters, I'm like, I just really don't know. Like, I don't know if I'd want these people to randomly kill their people. I, I mean, there's characters I think had not the greatest character arc, but I don't think murder would have improved it. <laughs> um, I, I my joke answer would be Dougie Milford, because I like the idea that. Dougie has killed someone, but he's already dead anyway. So like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And Dougie Milford just got the last laugh. <laughs> like that he secretly had a trail of bodies behind him, <laughs> but you know, that, that's kind of, and oh, then he blinks at the end when he's in the morgue. So I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, not in the morgue, but, uh, I'm assuming in the deathbed, literally. Uh uh-huh. Um, my more serious answer, I guess would be Hank Jennings in the sense that my undeveloped idea in my head for what I might have wanted as a possibility after Leland's reveal. I would want a few episodes where Leland is still possessed by Bob and the other characters don't know it, but we as the viewer do. We only got a couple like that. I would have wanted more. But then I was kind of interested in what could have been more of a Bookhouse Boys arc. Okay. I, I think that there could have been potential if Bob was going to switch hosts in the show, I think it would have been interesting to have it be one of the Bookhouse Boys a sort of darkness infiltrating their ranks and Hank Jennings being either, either the one possessed or red herring for it. (laughs) Someone who you might think it is, but it isn't. Okay. Um, that's been, that would also bring back Joey Paulson as a character. It would give James something to do that isn't being in a relationship with Donna or going off in the Evelyn arc. Mm -hmm. I think James being completely separated from women for just a moment Mm -hmm. and just having the, an element of storyline with him, and Ed and Joey Paulson and the other members of the Bookhouse Boys trying to work within their own ranks and figure out what's going on, that'd be good. Okay. Um, so, yeah, either Hank as an actual killer or as a red herring would be a notable <laughs> way to go.
0: My options, I'll admit, are not good. I will fully admit that these are not good choices. Okay, but you do believe in them. I believe in them because I personally enjoy them. Okay. So, one is that I almost kind of wish there was something far less personal when it came to the deaths Okay. in which, like, this person was lost but only because of the the evil that men do f- just for their own purposes. So having someone in, like, a higher position. At first I was thinking to myself, like, if it was something that could be arranged by someone as powerful as Benjamin Horn, But mm-hmm. no, instead I'm going to take the uh, left route and look at the... Uh, re- the Renault family, okay. the Renault family, which are, is basically a crime family, and them having to coldly deal with that what they have to do okay. in order to further their own personal benefit. So you
1: would have wanted one to be possessed by Bob?
0: I don't think this would be a possession route. No, because John Renault has already killed someone. John Renault has already killed someone, but just having like this trail being led back, and maybe some mild influence, but overall, it's just again a. Cold killer act in which someone would have to, like, at one point, one way or another, ask themselves, Why? Just why? So you would and- want
1: John Renault to kill Blackie, but then also kill, like, another character in Twin Peaks? I'd
0: say that it doesn't matter who exactly it's pointed at. I assume that Laura Palmer is dead, and that is the killer. Like, if it was just like John Renault, who just, like, hardly even knew her, or even. Oh, you're job- saying Laura's killer. Like, e- any of the deaths connected, yeah.
1: Okay, that's what I'm trying to understand about your question. So you're saying. If someone who was killed, like Laura or who, Maddie yes. changing their killer. Who
0: the revealed of the okay, killer.
1: That's not my answer. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't mean Hank Jennings killed one of those people. <laughs> I thought I thought I, you I, meant who would be a good new killer.
0: I mean I still enjoyed your answer thoroughly. Okay, yeah. So I accept that. I just this. didn't
1: understand your question then. My apologies. Um no, I would never change Laura Palmer's killer. Um I think that it being Leland was the completely right choice. Mm-hmm. Um I wouldn't change Maddie's killer. Mm-hmm. Um Jacques will keep the same. I mean, again, three for three, <laughs> let Leland have them. Yeah. Uh, Blackie, yeah, John. No. I, I wouldn't change any of the killers.
0: That, okay, very well. I, again, like this Elseworld sort of flirtation just because I wonder what it would do for the overall thing. Because, again, I accept that my options would be full dynamic shifts. Okay, so you said this will not be the genre. No, killing Laura. The more so, again, the Renault family. Okay, it is something in which it's the cold action of men doing evil, if you will. I the think Jacques that do. killing
1: Laura would have very different connotations than Jean or Bernard, just based on Jock's familiarity. Yeah, that would change the dynamic in a, in a different way.
0: It's could. It really depends on how much involvement or even like care Jock does, and how much you even believe he would even care. Right. So. I do like an idea in which it's just the action of the evil that men do that if you put them into the table and ask them why, Mm -hmm. it's just business, baby. Okay. What's your other one? My other one, horrible, horrible cliche, but whether knowingly or not, I like the idea of someone like Cooper coming into town, finding this place absolutely ideal Mm -hmm. and working on these murders, whether he knows it or not, I would like a point where it would be revealed that Cooper Mm -hmm. was directly involved, either cleaning up this utopia in order to be like, no, this is perfect for me. And I'm working on these other items, Mm. but also recontextualizing moments like for investigation, either a throwing sort of like bogus methods in front of people's faces to throw them off a trail or b even messing with crime scenes personally in which, like, through rewatching, as that sort of gets revealed and rediscovered,
1: mm-hmm. you look back through these methods and being like, yeah, no. So, are you thinking when you say clean up, like he would have been killing Jacques in the hospital, for example, potentially? I think like that- Blackie and Jacques would be examples of. Yeah. He could be doing some vigilante side stuff going on. Yeah. Laura, I think it's a little harder to make the case that he would know that she's an evil he has to kill.
0: It's overall like he's like he's following these overall trails. Maybe it's just involved in areas that he's overall mm. interested in, looks mm-hmm. through. Deer Meadow just didn't work out so well They ended so up not liking it. Do Moving either of on. these
1: possibilities you like more than Leland being the killer? I don't think so.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that they're fun ideas and I would love to explore the elseworld because I think that there's just fun potential with them, but I think that they made some pretty solid choices with things like Leland because this is very personal.
1: One thing also your question reminded me of that I don't think I mentioned ever before, maybe I did, <laughs> is that when there were all those fake scripts like circulating and there was the mystery over who is the killer. Wow,
0: Bernard? Really? He
1: came back? What I'm getting at, though, is that there was an alternate version of Maddie's death that was taken with a different actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, have I brought this up before? Not at all. So who do you think they would have, David Lynch being the primary target here, who, who do you think they would have chosen to kill Maddie, be implicated as Laura's killer, if it got leaked? James.
0: James? James? James is the one most involved with Maddie has many, most of the spoken lines okay. with Maddie. So if there had to be someone that would be like taken off to the side or even like Maddie would be more vulnerable to, it'd be very bold to put less someone like Donna in that position. Mm-hmm. But I think no, it would make the most sense for, I think that James is closer than Donna to Maddie.
1: And no, it was Ben Horn, Benjamin Horn. So there was an alternate version. This is again, it's to the status of legendary rumor, but there's enough people who have mentioned this that I'm confident it probably did happen okay. where it was a shot version of Maddie's death once with Leland and then also with Frank Silva as Bob, because obviously they spliced together the footage. Mm-hmm. And then there'd been a third version of it with Benjamin Horn being the killer that had been recorded as like almost like a backup. If something got leaked <laughs> now, I think it was more of a red herring that Ben would be the killer. I don't think like that was something they would have done if the Bob Leland thing had leaked. Okay. But it does raise the question, if that is the case, um, that Ben had been the other likely candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that in general would be a much weaker character for Ben yeah. if that had been the route they had gone. And I think it also would have been a much weaker route for Leland. Had that been the route they had gone. It's a lot of what ifs, but you, you you know, you asked who would have been a good killer if not Leland. Well, there is footage, arguably at one point, of Benjamin being the killer.
0: <laughs> Which It's I, never
1: surfaced though. That's where I kind of wonder if it's a legend.
0: Isn't that grand? But yeah, that's why I know that maybe strange for me to say, but the way that like what ifs can be like very off branching as far as my mind goes, that's why I usually stick with the overall media itself. No, I I I
1: like what ifs. I just think this is one where it's really hard for me to find a what if more compelling, Okay, you know, because recently on our YouTube channel, I made a video about the anime series Utena and that one had an, a what if as the main premise of the video. Mm -hmm. So I I do get the appeal in doing that. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so hard for me to imagine something even on a competing level with Leland being the killer, Mm -hmm. because everything after like worked that in so perfectly. Mm -hmm. And also even just thinking of where the characters were prior to the reveal, it did so much for Leland as a character. Mm -hmm. And it added so many layers of tragedy to what happened that I think there's just nothing that could have been as good. And yet when you looked at like polls from the time, People generally did not expect that. You know, this was at a time where people were still suspecting Leo.
0: I mean, I still suspect Leo, but I know the answer. But that's just because it's Leo.
1: Like Leo Johnson, I'm going to stumble haphazardly through the plastic wall and bring you trivia. (laughs) If you guys haven't
0: noticed the format yet. (laughs)
1: In case you haven't. Um, so this is from episode 21 and onward. So we're getting toward, toward the end of the series at this point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mark Frost says that if he had to do season two over again, he would have started the Wyndham Earl storyline right after Leland's death or maybe have a jump ahead in time within the show. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that?
0: How long of a gap is it between Wyndham Earl? One and- John Renault. One whole John Renault,
1: because that's the main arc that had began before Leland, that resumed after Leland, and then I, soon after John Renault is gone is where we start seeing the Windemere stuff pop up more.
0: Now, overall, I would, I think that John Renault needed his time. Yeah, I think that there had to be things John Renault brought up to Cooper that would question Cooper's resolve mm-hmm. before his greatest challenge. This is an example of the Black Lodge being in the real world. And I think, yes, I'm very, very thankful that that came around. Now, mind you, maybe things would have been skipped or jumped around inside the future. I don't know how far in the future are we talking. Are we talking just like a few months? Jump ahead in time. A few weeks in Twin Peaks time? Is it going to be 25 years? (laughs) It's, and so that one is far too broad for even like me to not go crazy with. But considering like going straight to Wynn Maybe flirt with it. Maybe, like, have, like, mention of him in the background. But don't take John Rineau
1: I I still feel like the main thing I would move earlier would be Annie. If I had to pick one thing to move earlier, introduce Annie, like, even two episodes earlier. Because that relationship, I think, mattered so much. Yeah. And it, John Justice Wheeler also, like, if I had another thing to move forward, I'd move him. But I think Annie's more of the priority considering where the narrative goes. You know, like mm-hmm. the
0: season two last moment. I'm kind of curious overall, when you consider like characters that were involved around the John no portion. Yeah. If we could move Annie sooner. Yeah. I mean, how involved inside of the position is Denise? Like how intricate is Denise to overall Twin Peaks and the general functions of the FBI? Denise
1: functionally was more of a... FBI connection who could vouch for Cooper in a moment where Cooper was being placed under suspicion, and someone who could work with Cooper to take down John Renault. Yeah. In that capacity, outside the FBI connection, could have been replaced by anyone in the Bookhouse Boys or in the police department. I think that. You could easily swap out Denise for Hawk.
0: I think having that line kind of softens the blow a little bit with say for example the overall questioning of cooper mm-hmm. and how he is struggling i think making cooper more alone yeah. in those moments in which like he is fully involved with law enforcement in twin peaks and only by toppling over people such as the mountie with his double agent ways mm-hmm. no i think that there can be i i think i prefer the idea of Instead of Denise being around, bring in someone like Annie, if you well, will, sooner. Well, and this is also
1: where if we brought Audrey in as a disciple, this is also where that could happen, too. Yeah. Because noticeably, when Denise is around, Audrey meets Denise, and her first reaction is, there's female agents in the FBI. <laughs> so, like, this is kind of a moment where I think if you were to bring in Denise, you would also use that as an opening for Audrey to become closer to Cooper yeah. in a non-romantic capacity. Um, so, I like Denise. I think that Denise while there are some things we question about the tone of the character and how the character is handled was so ahead of its time in terms of like potentially transgender representation Mm -hmm. or at the very least gender Mm nonconformity. If we look at it more as cross-dressing, however you want to interpret it. Yeah. Um, I I don't want to take it away because I do think it's like really important for what it did for a lot of people, like seeing that kind of representation in a show as big as twin peaks was. That's fair. And I think that again, you could use it so nicely to pivot into Audrey yeah, seeing a female FBI agent. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, I would want to keep. I would want to keep Denise. I mean, I would almost look at. There was that one episode where Lucy had her sister around, never showed up again. What was that about? Um, there
0: was. It's to show the continuity that she had a baby, and that's why Lucy had to leave for. A little I mean, bit.
1: even Mt Wentz, <laughs> like having Norma's mom in there, like it was. I didn't mind it, but like, imagine if instead of Mt Wentz, Annie came then. I don't know. Like, you'd have to change things so you could... St- you have to figure out what to do with... uh <laughs> You have to figure out what to do with Ernie. But, you know, once you figure out what to do with Ernie, it could work. It could potentially work.
0: I still do enjoy Norma's mother just because of just the cold relationship she has, even outside from her family. It really it's does good, but I, if it came
1: down to that and bringing Annie in, I'd bring Annie in. Like, that's yeah. the thing, like... I don't mind it. It's just I think the Annie arc needed a few extra episodes. Mm -hmm. Again, I think these are drastic moves, though, because I don't even know if it needed that many extra episodes. Throw in two more episodes, it probably would have been fine. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure anything needed to really be cut to do this, to be honest (laughs) with you. I don't even think anything needed to go. Just decrease the screen time on certain things. Okay. I don't know. That's just me, though.
0: I mean, like, you being just you continues to flirt with my concept of let's let Audrey be an agent. but Just
1: you and I mm-hmm. letting Audrey flirt with being an agent, not with Cooper.
0: <laughs> I mean, she's already shown prowess, say, for example, trying to find ways of interrogating individuals, mm-hmm. as well as just slowly uncovering mystery and even, like, pushing yourselves to great dangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you think with all this theorizing then that, like... Where do you think Audrey's going to be if she's in the return? In the return? I mean, she... Like, one, do you think she's going to be in it? And then, two, what would you do do with her? I think that she
0: will be in it if she survived the bank incident. Okay. That's the big thing. That's the big
1: elephant bank on the room.
0: The big elephant explosion in the room. Yes. But I really would imagine... She still continues along lines with Benjamin Horn. I think that the Mm. Horn family is strong enough that unless that there was an influence like Cooper off to the sides to push her in another direction, I don't see any reason why she'd overall walk away. It was overall her choices to chain herself to Mm. the bank vault, I imagine, to continue her own personal actions. These were overall her choices to continue on her dad's work. And it didn't seem like there were other alternatives to her motivations. So.
1: Okay. Uh, drastically pivoting back to uh, things involving Wyndham Earl and the trivia here. Uh, the actor behind him, Kenneth Walsh apparently would make requests for costumes. So like one day he decided to be a fat biker and then they would just like do that. <laughs> Welsh said, quote, David Lynch was hardly involved at all, except from a distance. He would have approval of things. He disapproved for what I was wearing at the beginning when Diane Keaton directed. He said, Wyndham should be all in black all the time. And Mark Frost was in and out. Bob Engels, okay, Robert Engels, mostly was very involved. Mm -hmm. So by the time that Wyndham Earl showed up physically, Mm -hmm. David Lynch was basically not around other than just to say no to some things. And then Mark Frost was almost entirely, like, he was just coming in and out as well. Mm -hmm. Where This is where you get people like Robert Engels, Harley Payton, um, you know, being the bigger figures, really, for season two. Yeah. And it is a curious thing, then, the idea that Wyndham Earl should be always in black all the time. Clearly, David Lynch did not get his way with that because Wyndham Earl was constantly playing (laughs) dress-up. What do you think of David Lynch's version of Wyndham Earl, then? Always in all black, all the time. Always looking like an FBI agent.
0: Wandering around in a black horse costume. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that just wouldn't have happened.
0: I mean, it is all black in that case. You know what black. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It definitely leads up to a lot of what I imagine the representation of World to be, and mm. especially with his constant push into this things of the Dugpas, the Black Lodge, etc. And perhaps it would make thematic sense, even if you were to say in the contradicting sense of he only wears the clothes, but he doesn't really play the part all too well by mm-hmm. the end. Though I think that having Wyndham Earl be not only questionable, but just a pure agent of chaos yeah, is much more.
1: It's just more fun.
0: It's much more fun. Like You
1: wouldn't have had the log lady moment, like where he dresses <laughs> up like the log lady and decks Bobby.
0: <laughs> With this triangle wood
1: which is not the kind you could buy from the Twin Peaks store, my <laughs> merchandise idea. No, that, I like the idea that maybe like one in 500 logs would be triangle cut. <laughs> so you would just get it in the mail and it'd be oddly triangular. <laughs> also continuing on the theme of, of David Lynch's absence at moments, uh, Diane Keaton, who at the time wanted to learn more about directing, recalls that she didn't have much contact with David Lynch regarding the episode she was making, and that he told her to do whatever you want And quote, goodbye, here, you have any ideas? Do it. Which, I don't know what the tone he said it in. When I read it, I kind of have a little bit of a menacing mocking tone. Yep. Maybe he said it really politely. (laughs) But there's almost a dark side, I think, in the whole, earlier it was this kind of hands-off, like, yeah, if you have an idea, go for it. But by the time the end of the show goes, it almost takes on a darker connotation of, eh, whatever. Go do the thing. You got something? Do it." it. It feels simultaneously freeing, but also careless. And I, and I think it could be read both ways. And I, and again, I don't mean to assume something that I wasn't there for, but it definitely, I could read this and be like, Lynch wasn't involved enough.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then for him later to say that season two went bad, it's like, then you should have said something. (laughs) That's where, again, I wonder, did he just feel like after the killer was revealed that he didn't need to bother anymore? That's kind of what it feels like is he just crossed his arms and walked away. I think that's,
0: that can be definitely interpreted. But I think that there's enough that he's already shown to have with interactions with writers as well as actors that kind of like getting the passive information. I think he does accept freedom up to a point mm-hmm. with people. But also can recognize, yeah, I really don't like what ended up. I don't think that he'll always make make things that he'll (laughs) be necessarily fully proud of, but he'll still make it the way that he needs to make it.
1: Also, on the same note, the actor who played Thomas Eckert, uh, David Warner, um, he also said that he didn't know much about the show or the character going in, Mm -hmm. He also seems to recall that Lynch wasn't involved in the production. Okay. So again, there's just this sort of consistent trend among a lot of people noting Lynch's absence. And I, and I feel like, I feel like partly I'm just always compelled to bring this up because I keep seeing so many people talk about like Twin Peaks as though it's all Lynch. And it's just like, that isn't correct. And I think Lynch himself would kind of be offended because he (laughs) doesn't like all of Twin Peaks. Like, so I feel like, labeling that is just not correct and i don't mean to come out and say it against anyone in particular but it's just it's always seemed to be a, a thing that pops up yeah. about how twin peaks is just pure lynch like i'll see a clip on youtube and it'll be about a scene from twin peaks and someone will comment about how ah, oh, it's just pure lynch and it wasn't an episode that lynch was involved in mm-hmm. he didn't write direct produce anything he wasn't even there <laughs> he's probably over at wild at heart making that movie. So I don't know. Oh, now to something more clear-cut, Josie. (laughs) A much more (laughs) easy-to-understand, grounded situation. So, Joe and Chen, the actor who plays Josie, uh, said a few words about how the character of Josie originally was going to be Italian and was going to be played by Isabel Rossellini, who had previously worked with Lynch on Blue Velvet, and as well as had been personally close to Lynch at the time, or at least before. I'm not sure if they had a falling out around then or when. But um, Joan said, Joan Chen said, quote, I didn't have much input into Josie's character, honestly. I realized there was the same kind of element like Blue Velvet, that outsider in this little town. She was an unknown. She was mysterious, but I didn't reach out to Mark Frost as they were going along to have any input of my own. We didn't know where our characters were going until we got the script and went to shoot. I slowly began to realize that because I wasn't Italian, I wish they had just kept writing her as if she was. That would have been interesting. So I think (laughs) it's interesting to note that Joan Chen wishes she was playing an Italian character, despite not being Italian. That would have definitely created a different vibe.
0: I mean, we already had a different vibe. We already had,
1: oh yeah, we already had um, Catherine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. With Piper Laurie pretending to be Japanese this would be the less offensive version, I guess.
0: I mean, like, as far as, like, if Josie were to play an Italian already, I think that there may have been, I don't know, less dissonance.
1: Yeah, what? I don't know. I mean, I... I mean,
0: obviously, like, there are Asian Italians out there. Right. So it's not saying that it's out of the ballpark.
1: Right. That That's completely possible. Um, it is also notable considering how much of the Hong Kong plot later came into things, like how It'd much Italy now. Yeah, I mean, really, though, if you just change the locations, how much would really change? Nothing. So, I think it would have been possible. I just don't see it as, like, when she says she wishes she would have kept writing it as Italian, I'm almost wondering what would be gained by the character being Italian. I don't think either way really mattered that much for the end of the day. I don't know.
0: Maybe it's like another layer of outsider, if you
1: will. Possibly. Michael Onkian, the actor who plays Harry admits that he would purposefully mess up scenes with uh, Joan Chen just so he could keep redoing them with her. Which, considering the scenes yeah, that he had it. with her. Why? Um, this is creepy. It's a little weird, unless she's into it too, in which case you're still wasting the camera person's time. Yeah. everyone just got to watch you keep making out with each other. Like, just save that for later. Buddy. That's my advice to this person 20 years, 25 years ago. <laughs> Over 25 years ago.
0: I hope that he followed it in the past.
1: On the topic of Josie's fate, the of course, the the elephant in the room. We've said this, we said the elephant in the room so many There's times. So many elephants in this room. It's become a consistent trend. It's getting cramped in here, guys. There's so <laughs> many elephants. Mark Frost said, this is again, straight from the elephant's mouth, Mark Frost, quote, I think that was something David and I talked about. And he had the notion that she, Josie, should be lost in another realm, but imprisoned in a way that it shouldn't be a physical. As much as a metaphorical prison. Okay. We had decided at the end of her arc that we didn't want to do another melodramatic death. We wanted something that had some mythological feel. And the next thing you know, she was a drawer pull. Does that explain everything for you, Professor? No. Not a thing. Zero things, really. I feel like Todd Holland keeps showing up in the trivia, but another thing with Todd Holland, the director of episode 1120, Mm -hmm. he uh, he said, I called Leslie Glotter up one night after an episode aired and said... What's the deal with Josie turning into a knob on the nightstand? And she just said, I have no idea. That's what it said in the script. So that's what I shot. It made no sense to me at the time I watched it, but you would get those things in scripts and you just had to shoot them as it is. Mm -hmm. It was the only time I've ever done that. No other show has ever required that kind of secrecy. Which reminded me a lot of the stuff we did in research with Utsuno, the anime, and how Ikahara would just hand things to his people. (laughs) And Ikahara was a big fan of Lynch, so I feel like they have a similar style in that regard. But yeah, the idea that it was just in the script, so even the director of the episode (laughs) doesn't have any clue why she was shooting this. This is just what she was told to shoot. (laughs) So even the directors don't have all the answers with these things.
0: (laughs) What do you think of that? There is just... The level of, I, I suppose I myself have not been involved in large productions such as right. Twin Peaks or any level of production that comes to things like media. But it just seems, it seems like a little bit of a roulette wheel on what's going to happen on shift today. Yeah, we
1: just get this neat little product on Blu-ray that we can watch 25 years later and just assume that everything was on purpose <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> And we could just all pretend that it was all the masterful vision of David Lynch that he all wrote in advance and all had time to plan out. Yep. It was everything was already like planned out from the beginning by one person. Singular vision.
0: Instead, it is it's, like I I've, like it's like you took like your dinner from the double R, just placed it into the back seat without even caring where the cups were. <laughs> and then you drove knocking everything over into a mush. There are so. And it does come together. But at the same time, you have to question, is, it, is the flavor supposed to be like this? Too many
1: cooks will spoil the broth.
0: I mean, they only took like a cook and named Toad and a driver. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really depends on, you know, who's who's driving a vehicle and how much you trust the driver to get to the destination you want to go. And I would say there's no one I trust more to get me the destination I want to go than a certain pilot named John Justice Wheeler. <sighs> Tell me about Justice. So, Billy Zane, uh-huh. classic actor of titanic fame yeah and kingdom hearts fame yeah you, well, you didn't like
0: well kingdom hearts i don't think that eckard was a part of but she didn't even introduce Eckerd with titanic
1: Eckerd wasn't in titanic was he yeah no he was
0: like oh. well, like the bat like one of the bad guys in it
1: was he? he i forgot he was in the titanic he played a character
0: called spicer lovejoy love carl <laughs> love Carl's Maybe back? That's, no, it's Spicer Lovejoy. This is an entirely different love family.
1: That's a fantastic name, but I either didn't know or completely forgot this information. No,
0: don't you just like it's It's officially on the James Cameron Titanic.fandom.com where you find his whole filmography and nothing talking about his character. But there are like scenes where Billy Zane and Spicer Lovejoy are standing next to each other. I think they're cohorts. I haven't seen the film Yes, their
1: characters never met in Twin Peaks.
0: No, it. it I don't it's think. crime. It maybe this anyway, crime somewhere.
1: Billy Zane, speaking of crimes, quote: At that time, I was pretty well known as the go-to guy for sociopathic behavior on film. David and Mark Frost brilliantly cast against type. You had a show that was really filled with eccentric people for the most part, crazy to some degree, and they cast the guy who was known as crazy as the most wholesome in the show, which I thought was very clever and humorous and ironic. I welcomed it. I love that there was this Gary Cooper like sweetness to John Justice. He flies in on his jet to save an endangered species, and for his goodness, he gets the great privilege of deflowering Audrey in a plane. It was extraordinary. Quote so, Billy Zane.
0: So Billy Zane does know that his character was working with Benjamin Horn, right?
1: Um, yeah, but apparently he still
0: thinks he's a entity of goodness. Like maybe that's the case. Maybe Benjamin Horn does have. Hey, good the angel connection. on
1: Benjamin Horn's shoulder is still working for him, and he's an angel.
0: Um, sure. That angel has
1: a name, John Justice Wheeler.
0: Ah, sure, with rental The devil has a
1: name, too. Jerry Horn. (laughs) Who again might be dead.
0: Jerry Horn, (laughs) killed by the cook. (laughs) Died like that.
1: Well, I mean, apparently, Sherilyn Fenn also will vouch for Billy Zane and his character. Why? Quote, Billy's a really nice person. He's a cutie. He's funny. He's a sweet person. But it wasn't right. Never mind, she won't vouch. I misread the. <laughs> I, I didn't read far enough in here. You need to pre read your stuff for your said, quotes. Hey, I do it fresh for the audience, all right? <laughs> Quote, that storyline just didn't work. Those characters didn't work for me. I didn't like it at all. Heather Graham and Cooper didn't work. It was stupid. The whole thing was just a whitewash. <laughs> so, brutal. See, so yeah, again, Sherilyn Fenn had really strong feelings that the Cooper Audrey thing should have happened for their characters. Okay. And I and again, I kind of wonder if our proposal that Audrey and Cooper being together but not romantically, how she would have felt about that, I'm curious uh-huh. if she would have felt like that was good or not. I can just imagine, though, her upset feelings that her character kind of did fizzle out in the second half of season two. Yeah. Like, once she came out of her little coma from one Eye Jacks, she kind of just got shafted to, like, the background. Bye. Which isn't really fair for a character who greatly... I would say contributed to the popularity of Twin Peaks in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it had to be the only way. I don't know if everything has to be blamed for that. (laughs) I don't know. In the Pine Weasel episode, right before the take where John Justice Wheeler kisses Audrey, the news had announced that the U.S. was entering the Gulf War. So when they said action, Billy Zane says that the kiss, quote, had an urgency that was from another time. The kiss held a promise of peace. So when we held fast to each other in that moment, and it was in form of the beautiful desperation, we didn't know what the future would hold or what that meant. It was on par. It was par for the course. It was par for the course for the experience, which was cemented in some kind of mad, romantic, tragic blur. Is that better or worse than James and Evelyn's actors saying how much they like to smooch each other? Um, they didn't have any romantic war sympathies with no, it. No,
0: this is an area of poeticness. It's like, Okay, <laughs> but you're kind of like look at the guy, and you kind of have to turn your head. Yeah, yeah, you 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 took a lot out
1: of it, but at the same time, friend. I mean, imagine you're you know you're acting, and you have to go kiss someone, and then you're found out they're entering a war. It's uncertainty's on the brink. Would you not put more passion into that kiss?
0: I would put more passion into it if there was more passion between John Justice Wheeler and Audrey.
1: Ooh, it's a sick burn. That Sherilyn Fenn would agree with. By the way, completely unrelated to anything involving this guy, James Foley, the episode 24 director, wanted someone in a scene to have a blue suitcase, but someone let him know that David Lynch did not want the color blue to appear in the series, so he couldn't have the blue suitcase. Wait, what? Yeah. Like- Now, I can't imagine it never shows up, Uh but it's sparingly used. Like, I mentioned before that Maddie in episode 14 had that, like, blue rose, like, robe, that's one of the most pointed examples of blue.
0: So it makes you wonder, like it, like as far as like the color blue, is that like very important for David Lynch, the color yes. blue in that respect? Blue and red I, are
1: David Lynch's colors.
0: So why didn't he dye the lake? <laughs> 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 Jokes aside though, no, I, I can't think of many blue instances other than I mean, water. Like, Major
1: and, and Briggs' later, suit is like a navy blue. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a dark. Oh, All and guess that? what?
0: Yeah, with the character who happens to have a blue rose yeah. false inside of his home. Yeah, yeah.
1: So anyway, blue is important. I wouldn't be surprised for Lynch to be like, do whatever you want with your characters. I don't care about what happens to the story, but don't put the blue suitcase. That wouldn't surprise me. Where would the blue suitcase go? And why blue? What, I don't what is know. The purpose? I don't Khalil, know. Find the answers. I've done enough, professor. Yeah, I've, you, you could do some work around I, here too. I, I am. I can't. You tell me not to. That's fair. <laughs> that's completely fair. Maybe the show would have been saved if that blue suitcase had been properly utilized. But unfortunately, we don't live in that timeline. Mm-hmm. On February 16th, 1991, ABC announced an indefinite hiatus upon the airing of episode 23, leaving the immediate future of the show uncertain. ABC executive Philip Segal disclosed that Twin Peaks came very close to cancellation and ABC was very frustrated. This hiatus was, of course, to be eventually ended. We did get a finale. But the hiatus was met with backlash from dedicated Twin Peaks fans. And a group calling themselves Citizens Opposed to the Offing of Peaks, abbreviated COOP, barraged (laughs) ABC executives to prove there was passionate demand for the show to continue. And whether it's by their efforts or by some unknown supernatural force in the energy waves of the air, it came back. So, do you have any more questions, um... Sent to you via brainwaves by uh, Uncle Professor? I mean, if there is <laughs> anyone who was once a part of Coop
0: and wants to talk about how that sort of event went with them, please email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or go ahead and give us a Twitter over at snakeeyedreams1, the numeral one.
1: Give us one Twitter, please. <laughs> one
0: tw- I'll take more, but maybe at least one.
1: Anyway... Questions from Professor? No, Go. No, no, no,
0: we're framing like I know how to transition here. But wherever you're at in the world, just know that we're glad to provide you with the Peak Twin Peaks experience here. And I, I mean, know there's I, a
1: lot of peaks. We're not the only ones. I
0: know I've talked about him a lot throughout this whole podcast, but I think that this is a great opportunity for us to have a special guest. Please come in, Unplug Professor. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. So, Unplugged Professor. Yes, Unplugged Professor. I'm not going to
1: entertain this illusion. He literally just spun in his chair like 30 degrees <laughs> to in a direction and then just said the same thing in the same voice.
0: Now, honestly, like, I, I believe that as far as this side of the table goes, we are known as the more loving uh, individuals as part of this podcast. Oh, I've completely heard that, and I agree with that sentiment. Unplugged you know how you Professor. do, like, character
1: voices or something to differentiate?
0: Despite... The criticism from my other co-hosts who can't really appreciate the company of a gracious guest. Uh, Unplugged Professor, why don't you present us with a few more of your wonderful questions? Why, thank you, Unplugged Professor, thank you very much. So, uh, I, as the Unplugged Professor, i am going to ask forward to you. Throughout Twin Peaks, there's a lot of death. Is that too far to say? No, that's that's about right. Is, what death amongst all of the dead bodies do you feel stands out the most?
1: Maddie. Maddie. Please, go on. It's the most memorable death. Why? Because it's so graphic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, overall, it's just the overall scenes with overall Leland dancing about, it's, or it's, it's just the, the... It's the
1: killing scene. like the killing scene? Laura's death is, yeah, it's, it's obviously very graphic in Fire Walk of Me, but Fire Walk of Me tonally mm-hmm. was already so dark and so brutal that I think it doesn't have the same effect as Maddie's death coming kind of out of nowhere mm-hmm. and just being so dark for something that was airing on, like, CBS. Okay. Um, it's still, like, one of the most kind of harrowing scenes of a murder in a TV show. Mm-hmm. It's not its not the most graphic or bloodiest, but its it's the situation and kind of the way it's being portrayed in the acting. Mm-hmm. Having Bob kind of, like, inhaling her scent as he's, like making out with her and brutalizing it's just it's a lot yeah and i think it's done on someone who literally maddie hadn't been that implicated anything that bad Mm -hmm. she'd been dragged around by donna and james and doing things but maddie by no means i mean no one deserves this but maddie did not deserve this so i think it's, it's it's the total violence of it the unnecessary nature of it but the mm-hmm. then again, it was Cooper failing to really prevent it. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, Maddie's the, the most standout death in the series. All right. Fantastic. So far at least. I, I can't say about the return, but yeah. For sure in seasons one and two. Okay. Um other runner-ups, I will say Josie, for the sake that hers was just so mysterious, if you even want to call it a death. Mm-hmm. Um a similar note in terms of unclarity is Ben. If Benjamin Horn died at the fireplace, then it's obviously super abrupt, which the, the like, if Ben is dead, right? If he's dead, the way the show would just quickly dispatch a main character just like that. Did he appear after the fireplace scene? I'm pretty sure. No, we never said he appeared. We just talked about Audrey. Mm. You think Audrey's reactions would be different mm-hmm. if the, earlier that same day her dad died. Okay. But I don't think we ever for sure found evidence that he was alive. Okay. Again, I obviously know what happens after either way, <laughs> but for the sake of what we saw, I don't think it's been confirmed either way. Okay. And then I'd also give a nod then to Harold, the sort of mysterious circumstances that that brings up. Mm-hmm. And Jean Renault primarily because Jean Renault's death was one that Cooper was responsible for. Yes. That Cooper took a life and that's not something that Cooper does in the show otherwise. Yes. It's the only time Cooper ever kills anyone in the show, right?
0: Yeah, I believe that that is the case. It's where Cooper was Sets into the result of force, yeah, and it's almost becomes a it fe- it's shot in a strange light that's different from a lot of the show, where it almost feels like um, almost poetic, almost mm-hmm. but in a more fairy tale light, if you will. This is something in which was killed off, and there's something being more revealed by the death itself. Sure. Like it seems like it is a much more symbolic death than I can say about some others, which would be more character-driven deaths. Mm -hmm.
1: So, what was your favorite?
0: I think John Renault. I think like literally that hit the nail on the head from where he had. It is, it's something that feels very unique and maybe even is the closest push to something of a soap opera Mm -hmm. element on it. But it's John Renault from beginning to end is someone that is heavily charismatic that you can kind of hear his voice off in the distance whenever you think of something like that. That's just you, Professor. That's just me.
1: You hear Jean Reno's voice well, in Well, let me head. check.
0: Is it just me? No, it's me too. Yeah, no, I get it. So yes, that's two against one.
1: Why are Khalil. you doing this bit? <laughs> Why did it's you decide a, <laughs> to do this bit? This is not planned.
0: It is three halves, Khalil. So.
1: While you're here, Professor, any other questions you want to ask? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do, I
0: do. I think I do, because when we think of death, we also have to consider things such as Andrew Packard.
1: <laughs> what do I think of death as a general concept? Del That's the Mibler, first thing I think of.
0: Del Mibler, Audrey Horn, Pete Martel. Okay. Like, we consider death here because we don't know how many are dead. This is a body count that says- The
1: glasses flew across the street to the tree. It's- I keep it, repeating that as the piece of evidence. It's
0: very mysterious, and- the most mysterious part about this, Mm. I would argue, is an absence of one character. Okay. A distinct absence. And this character is someone I would hardly ever call absent from what antics that she's willing to pull. And that character, of course, is Catherine. In general, or not in general, you can go into specifics if you want. (laughs) What happened with Catherine? Catherine is a character where From the beginning, we see enough of a give and take in which that she's willing to do what she's willing to say to people and even question on her overall moralities. Catherine, who ended up being victorious against Benjamin Horn, getting everything that she wanted overall. Catherine, who has been hiding her brother over time, who has been able to successfully keep like her agenda hidden by saying she lived off of tuna in the middle of the woods Catherine, who is willing to speak her mind in all sorts of ways, but you just don't know where it should land, when, where she's mocking and where she's genuine. Catherine, who had the subtitle woman <laughs> at one point and then she did. She was completely did. absent at this crowning achievement for the Packers going against the Eckerd. What happened?
1: my answer, I feel like my answer is going to be kind of boring. Um, if, if I understand your question, it's a pretty broad one. I think that my my genuine response would be that there are some characters between the different writers and different directors, especially on the writer side, though, where I don't think they knew what to do with them. Okay. And I think that that especially rang true in Elements later in Season 2. Again, I like later Season 2. I overall think it's good. It's not bad. But there are certain characters that were iffy in how they were presented. I think the problem with Catherine came from two directions. One is that she won. The moment Catherine beat Ben, I think it kind of took away the central conflict that Catherine had up till that point. Mm -hmm. Catherine's whole shtick was being Ben's opponent, Mm -hmm. Ben's adversary and vice versa. Whereas Ben got the whole civil war arc and then the redemption carrot arc. Catherine never had something as tangible for herself. Mm -hmm. And that goes into the second point is that instead of Ben, she became mostly someone to play off of Josie. And then Josie turned into a drawer knob. And so I feel like in terms of the female characters in the Martell plotline, Josie usurped her. Like Josie became the more mysterious, more shadowy figure than Catherine herself. Mm -hmm. And as a result of it, like Catherine got some great moments with Josie, with Pete, even with Andrew toward the end there. But I still feel like she was being upstaged. Not not in the acting department. I mean, again, Piper Laurie was doing a great job. Mm -hmm. But I think that her character was never able to recover fully from the Tojimura arc where she disappeared for a good number (laughs) of episodes, at least disappeared as Catherine. And then when she came back, she beat Ben, Josie took the spotlight, and then... Andrew Packard kind of took the spotlight away from her too. Okay. So I don't think there's a grand narrative reason, or at least enough evidence to believe that Mm -hmm. given what we've seen more just that they didn't really know what to do with Catherine as much. And she became a secondary character in Josie's story and a secondary character in the Andrew Packard versus Thomas Eckert storyline. Okay.
0: All right. Does that make sense? No, that makes great sense. Now, If you'll allow me. I will. I'm insane. Yes. And I think that Catherine won especially at the end. Let's take a little bit of a look back, if you will. And I will keep using this. Catherine at the point of sweet, sweet victory. She's still working alongside with Andrew Packard during the time, especially when Thomas Eckert sort of appears around. And she's the one presented with the box from Thomas Eckert specifically. Like that that's like something that has been passed on. For however much Thomas Eckard might have against Catherine, I don't know. It seems that primarily the sport was between Thomas Eckard and Andrew yes. Packard. So I don't know what sort of things was just unspoken between these two characters. It seemed Thomas Eckard was surprised to see Andrew Packard alive. It seems that that came through with a shock. And I don't know if you know this, Khalil, but puzzle boxes in which mm-hmm. you have to like get to the intricacies this far and have arranged. I don't think Twin Peaks has a place in which really processes them. I don't know how well shipping gets straight to mm-hmm. them. This seems like something that was generally pre-planned. If this is the case, you have then a strange series of puzzles that are put all together in this intricate way for whatever Thomas Eckerd wants to do. Mm-hmm. I don't have enough motivation to believe that Thomas Eckerd is just going to kill it off just because it's the nature of the sport. If anything, if that's the case, I've argued before, that would just be in the box. Then Thomas Eckert is able to bury a trail behind him enough that if he keeps on like lengthening the journey, that's only going to give more points for him to be caught. That's how much I would argue, especially renting out a box in an overall bank, unless that bank was to have very little trace afterwards that even documents would be taken down. That might be a case. I think that the way that Catherine speaks to Andrew Packard by the end of it, in which there's a show of tentative trust between the two of them, that either A, she's able to switch things out and she's shown enough intelligence to be able to play with people's ideas in order to give herself an advantage to possibly blow up any loose ends on her end. Or B, there's enough intelligence that I could argue that perhaps she can play dumb enough to solve the box ahead of time and still do the same plots. Because I do not believe that Thomas Eckerd was the one who set, like, the bomb through. Because what does Thomas Eckerd gain other than a few additional bodies and a little bit of an extra mess? I the mean, last laugh. Last laugh, he doesn't seem to be someone who... He seems more of a romantic business partner than he does someone who feels the last laugh is fully there. I mean, the last laugh in the end would probably be gaining Josie and then uh, going off away. And then maybe, maybe blowing him up as a result. But again, after that, what then? Maybe I just don't understand Thomas Eckert enough, but I feel that Catherine gains way more than Thomas... Because at the end of the road, whether or not like Catherine ended up like getting to the deposit box first and gaining what was from there and then swapping it out and getting rid of someone else who wants the advantageous end of that. The weird dialogue between Catherine and Andrew, the fact that Pete follows Andrew and Catherine's nowhere to be seen, mm-hmm. yet we've seen them together enough. It seems like already the th- it's out of the bag. Catherine's absence makes her much more of a suspicious character if the combination of these prior scenes.
1: So uh, a few things. Um, yes. First of all, during that whole entire scene that was just unfolding in this podcast, the unplugged professor had his hands folded with his fingers intersecting in like a business pose. He was like offering me a business proposal, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> but it shows this seriousness in what he's saying. Uh, a question for you then. So if she took whatever was in the safety deposit box... First and then planted a bomb for Eckert, for Andrew Packard.
0: Or if she had or, enough or insight she, that she, this she's would the one who
1: put the bomb in the first place. Either way, what does she gain then from killing Andrew Packard?
0: Well, overall all the dirty laundry is ended up finished with overall Eckard. We she literally has a man that has been presumed dead for so long inside of her home that if ever spoken up, that might give more credence to things being suspicious on her end of activity. Like Andrew Packard just suddenly reappears again. Uh, that's already a heavily suspicious thing. And if people look into what Catherine's been up to, thanks to this appearance, because I'm sure there may be an investigation to follow, that'd be bad. Thirdly, it's just having people that are at your level, being so close around you is enough of a liability that the conversation between her as well as her brother And the way they sort of treat each other, it's like, no, absolutely, we love each other. I think that there is a game of chess that she needed to remove the other (laughs) side's queen or king, if you will. Do do
1: you believe that Pete then was an accident in this? Or was that he part of the risk she knew going in that Pete could get killed from this? Pete still
0: is implied in a lot of her crimes and even is heavily involved, laughing away. She was not friendly with Pete for the longest time. And... To say that she could go back to not being much around Pete, if anything, it'll take away some of the overall migraines and headaches that she already has okay. because she's willing to, when getting an edge, do what she needs to. No matter what deception needs to be taken, she's come out on top, and there are very cold but calculated reasons for that.
1: Okay, and then one one more question I want to tease out. This one's kind of to challenge your ideas. Go for it. If one of her goals would be to get rid of Andrew Packard because people finding out that he's alive, I'm alive, would potentially like draw suspicion on her yeah. and her activities, then why would she send Andrew Packard into the town to go to this bank? Because on his way to the bank, or possibly even just someone goes to the bank and cap- cap- catches him there before the bank explodes, isn't that kind of a risk to send him into town to kill him when you could just get rid of him? at the sawmill (laughs) because that
0: be at the sawmill that's what place that she's implied he's going off to a bank to open up a safety deposit box that overall seems to be belong to someone or the records themselves can be destroyed enough he's going off to a neutral place a place in which andrew packard would want to go be willing to go and even open up those risks because he's having his victory lap in the moment but
1: again what if someone sees him on the way if someone sees him
0: she has plausible deniability if it's in the sawmill that's her sawmill why hadn't you seen him. if he's just like walking his way over it's like oh andrew packard where the hell did you come from why would andrew packard even answer like fully the question other than maybe like be like with del mibler and yeah. just sort of tease the thought just like well, oh, i'm just this-.
1: saying though let's say big ed is in town yeah. he just came from the bank and he sees andrew packard walking into the bank
0: neutral zone if he sees him inside the sawmill that's suspicious.
1: But you're all, one of your suspicions, though, is that she would kill Andrew to avoid suspicion. Wouldn't the fact that Andrew Packard's alive and then got blown up also make people suspicious Who's about Who's left alive
0: to talk at that point? Since Pete went with them, and if we assume Pete to be dead, being around the blast radius... Who is able to at this point of investigation look into it? Oh wait, you guys have some extra food. Literally, Catherine could say, "No, we have a lot of guests. I I own the okay. sawmill. I have this fully prepared." It's going to go over to Benjamin Horn. Benjamin Horn talking is going to imply him and so much, and he's going to be thrown under the dust. At that point, they're going to have to be like deep covert and have whatever reason to be like Catherine. We're so suspicious of you. I don't know why, but we're so suspicious of you. We're dusting this place for prints, and even then, I imagine that she would be okay with doing some house cleaning. To I'm work sure Josie that.
1: kept the place nice and clean anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I think you survived my round of questioning. I think your theory still holds. Uh, what I what I will say is that I don't think there's enough in seasons one and two and what we've experienced to go either way in what you're saying. Very well. And that means that either it's going to be something that'll be elaborated on later, Mm -hmm. or it will never be elaborated on, (laughs) or it'll be disproven.
0: Yeah. And I will not tell you which of those three it is. I look forward to whatever opportunities come ahead, but the fact that I got to have a fun time thinking about this is, again, a testament to how impactful Catherine is. Mm -hmm. Uh, someone who is willing to go as far as become a boxy Japanese man.
1: (laughs) Which she probably shouldn't have done. Actually, that probably would be very bad. No, that's
0: very bad, but she's not doing things that are very good either.
1: Speaking of things taking a turn for the worst, sinking Nielsen ratings and creative frustrations created distress on the set of Twin Peaks. I'm back to trivia, by the way. Which select interview participants indicated had stemmed from the physical absence of Mark Frost and David Lynch and a growing overall apathy among cast and crew. Michael Parks, the genre no actor, never worked with David Lynch. Just saw him coming out of the bathroom once, <laughs> where Lynch told him he liked Parks' work. Parks thanked him, and that was it. That was all they ever exchanged. Tony Krantz, a former TV agent, said, quote, The show I was trying to get David to come back into had long since disappeared from his subconscious in the way that it was in the, during the beginning. It was pure David Lynch, it was of him with Mark. Mark was critical to the process, and they were partners, but in the second season, it was a bunch of writers who were trying to do something quirky and funny and weird, but it was coming from the outside in as opposed to the inside out, and the American public felt it. Tony Kranz continues, quote, David and I would have lunch together. The second, cle- the second season was clearly spiraling out of control, and David and Mark were not really talking to each other. David felt alienated from his own show. I brought the two of them together with me for dinner and I literally made them old hands. And I said, guys, you need to do this show together. This is magic with you guys together. Separately, it is not working. By that time, it was too late. Ken Scherer, former chief operating officer of Lynch Frost Productions, said, quote, we knew people were watching this show in mass numbers. We knew it from our fan mail and I wish the internet had existed then because if social media was around, we would still be on the air. But we couldn't prove to this rigid network structure that kids were watching it in dorms, that people were having house parties, and the numbers lied beneath the Nielsen ratings. By the way, with the Nielsen ratings today, we'd be a home run. But then (laughs) it was unacceptable. Any thoughts on all that? I mean, I feel like it's a lot of things that we've talked about being a little more substantiated.
0: We're lucky to be, and also in some portions unlucky, to be in the age of information in which it's much more easier to sort of Gage fandoms, if you will. I thoroughly do not know how fandoms work so far in like larger scopes around the years before the internet was a big booming place.
1: This is pre-GeoCities.
0: Yeah. So at that point, it's... I, I don't think that the person is wrong in what they're saying in which like... the. Twin Peaks could have continued, would have been much bigger. It's just the overall question of, if it was, Mm -hmm. should it have been? Yeah. I think that there's enough compact here with the overall stories that, yeah, we could probably continue uh, them along for quite some time and explore other characters. And maybe, like, we could finish different bits of stories. But the fact that some stories are lost amongst the chaos that happens amongst this town, and the way that... Twin Peaks did end at this point. I don't know if it would have the same cultural impact for people who look back at Twin Peaks and say, this was a time.
1: I think one of the potential conclusions we could reach from all this trivia and our discussion on it so far has been that, and perhaps it's an obvious realization, but it's so very rare to find someone who you agree with 100% of the time when it comes to art and storytelling. Okay. In the sense that we can look at someone like Kyle McLaughlin and say that sometimes he had some great ideas for the character and sometimes we preferred the way things went when he didn't get what he wanted. Mm-hmm. We can look at someone like David Lynch and be like, yeah, he had some great ideas, but he also would have done this that I might not have liked. <laughs> and accepting that all of these different creators have that element to them where it's okay to dislike some of Mark Frost's decisions, some of David Lynch's decisions, some of the actor's decisions, while also praising other ones. If David Lynch and Mark Frost never went away from Twin Peaks, we probably wouldn't have had a lot of the things that we got. Mm -hmm. We probably wouldn't have the Evelyn arc that you like so much. We probably wouldn't have gotten Dick Tremaine as we know him. Probably wouldn't have gotten Nadine as we know her. Ben Horne's whole redemption Civil War saga probably wouldn't have happened. Not to mention the way that the White and Black Lodge developed. Wyndham Earl, the way he developed, that's marked so much by Lynch and Frost being absent. We never would have had the killer revealed. Like Lynch, if he had got his way, he never wanted to reveal the killer. There are still plenty of people who think he was right, who think that it should never have been revealed, maybe the last episode or never. And I disagree in the sense that one of my favorite moments in all of television I've ever seen is the episode where Leland kills Maddie and it's revealed. I think that it's kind of impressive then. Like, say, for example, he does not like
0: this. There's a lot of things that he does not like. He has a very firm opinion on season two. Would there be a world with Fire Walk with me then?
1: Yeah. Because that is like
0: thoroughly embracing it, and I can kind of respect that even disliking it, he did end up embracing that end. They could have been like mysterious throughout the whole movie, But I think that there had been so much lost with the overall pulling, twisting, and turning of Leland Palmer.
1: I agree. And that's, again, like, how do you look at all these different scenarios? This is where I'll sympathize with you. I'll sympathize with the devil. To quote another Rolling Stones song.
0: Wait, wait, uh, me or uh, that
1: guy? You, both of you. Okay. Together. The two heads of the devil. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I I sympathize with you because I know that you're not as big of a fan of some hypothetical situations, and I get why in the sense that, at least from, from my understanding of why, is that if we change even just one thing, the butterfly effects are so enormous. If we... Shames, this or that about Twin Peaks, Firewalking might not exist. It's
0: something which I recognize in my own mindset. The further that I go down it, if I accept it as what if we got this, it distorts the image of something in which I feel is being tempered against my imagination. And I, though people will disagree with me, I feel that that can be unfair at times because there's so much that goes into art like this. So many minds, so many individuals that an ideal self Mm -hmm. of something like this is that an ideal. It is a dream within a dream. Mm.
1: And yet, and yet working within this sort of semi contradictory way, I still reassert the value of offering those criticisms and offering those what ifs, because Mm. I think it helps the discourse. I think it helps the fandom. I think that being able to criticize things that you didn't like as much and then other people re- having rebuttals and going that back and forth, it draws out things. That's how you find weird discoveries and people notice things from different perspectives. You kind of need that back and forth of liking and disliking something. Like for example, the, the Cooper Audrey thing, it's allowing that discussion to have, ha- have happened and hash it out in both directions that I think you, or not more than just both, multiple directions, Mm -hmm. I think it allows for new ideas and new interpretations to exist. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think that there's a value in it, even if we want to be mindful that if we do change these things, it could take away other things we love, and that it's never that simple, and that, again, just saying, oh, if Lynch had never left, if Frost had never left, Twin Peaks would be perfect, you'd lose things. You lose things in all these exchanges, Mm-hmm. Um, you gain and you lose and and I think uh having time to talk about this show in that sort of way with a friend I find very valuable, excellent by the way, totally unrelated. Tim Hunter, the episode director of episode twenty eight <laughs> said that he made Wyndham Earl's teeth black to pay homage to Ozu Mizoguchi's minimalist films, like Tokyo Story, which he had just watched prior to directing the episode. Ha, <laughs> so apparently it's a reference to Japanese filmmaker Ozu Mizoguchi. I cannot verify that one. I haven't seen any of his work, uh, including Tokyo Story, but I'm going to assume that that's a thing he does. <laughs> which we're over here like, oh, it affects the Black Lodge. And it might. Like, it we might. don't know the purposes or the overall yeah. tone
0: that goes through. I think that seeing the media and hopefully being on the same mindset could like lead that. But again, that is something which is already going into the wild sure. outskirts. Of Twin Peaks.
1: Uh, More from Sherilyn Fenn and her frustrations. This is, again, Audrey's actor. Quote, the pinnacle of frustration for me was when they had a beauty show or something and all the girls were dressed up. Mm -hmm. The whole show was starting to feel like it had lost its way. It wasn't character motivated. It was, let's get the girls in a fashion show. I just remember reading it and going, no. It was the only time I ever went to David and Mark and said, there is no way. They said, but we have to have you there. Can you make an announcement for your dad's business? And I said, fine. That's why I wasn't up there. It was dumb. I hated the whole second season. So there's a voice of opinion right there from Sheridan Fenn. Yep. Again, I got to respect, even if I don't always agree with her, I got to respect her outspokenness because Mm -hmm. she is one of the easiest cast members to track in terms of where they stand. She's not going to give a sort of like, Oh, it was fun. I had a good, she's going to be like, this was crap. This was awful. It could have been amazing. (laughs) I kind of respect the hard line of it. Yeah. Even if like it is extreme to simply say like, I hated the second season. Yeah. But consider again, what Audrey was doing in the second season and consider being the actor for Audrey after season one, mm-hmm. I can see where there's a little bit of that sense of like my character didn't get stuff done right with her, and extending that beyond her own character too. Mm-hmm. And I could see why she might dislike the 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 fashion the Twin Peaks fashion show, for example. Yeah, because it could definitely seem, in a certain light, to be very much straying from the goals of the show. Maybe straying from the goals of the
0: show, but it's kind of like that little concept of. I'm fine with, like, the general fashion show that Dick Tremaine was running with the horrible fashion that kind of went down the walkway. But that's because there's all sorts of individuals. Whenever it comes to things such as just these direct pageants, it's not in my wheelhouse. And it almost it can seem compelling to the Dick Tremaines of the world. Mm-hmm. So, Though I do respect those who do partake onto them and do have a passion for them.
1: I just think Sherilyn Fenn's stance makes sense. Yeah, I may not always agree with it, but it makes sense to me the actor for Nadine Wendy Robbie um, has a pretty meaty quote here I'm just gonna say meaty. and then give you a time to think if there's anything you want to say in reply to it okay. I really enjoyed this quote and I figured I'd just keep the whole thing the lovely fantasy that Nadine got to play in the second season was like a little gift or reward for her and that was fun then of course it all had to be taken away from her at the end when she comes back she knows what she's lost in that last moment that was doing her honor and that was all David Lynch Because if you read that scene on the page, it's funny, but he allowed her the tragedy that was due, the pain of that grief. She knows what she's lost and she can't live in her own fantasy anymore. That was David. I couldn't be anything but grateful. Nadine looms large in my career. I was just a small part of the series, but if you put it all together over that amount of time, it was a huge role and I was allowed to create. She loomed large just to be playing a character for that long, but I do know that, especially the first season, it had to carry underneath it the pain of Nadine. I had to carry that to do her justice. I have never played a character that hurts so much as she does. She lived in her own private firestorm of madness. <sighs> it's one of my favorite quotes from an actor in the in the show.
0: No, uh, honestly, as opposed towards, like, John Justice Wheeler kissy moments, I know I genuinely find, and this is my subjective take, but I yeah. genuinely find this heavily poetic. I do. I think she got her character. I think that she did. And this is the most horrifying part is that just imagine being this character and, again, living that aspect of a dream and then seeing things come to an end to realize that Nadine had to wake up.
1: It's just so, it's so interesting hearing the motivations behind other actors because two of my favorites would be Harold and Nadine and seeing how much the actors got into their roles. Mm-hmm and Catherine Coulson, the log lady would also get really into her role as well and care deeply about her position in twin peaks. But then you have like Michael parks as genre. No, just wanting to do a cool accent. Like that seemed to be his main motivation.
0: <laughs>
1: it's just so interesting how sometimes you'll have characters who are like deeply invested in their character and some who are just like doing it as a side thing. And, they can both pull off wonderful performances in different ways.
0: They, This is a series of multiple levels of Motley Cruz. You know that band? Oh, I just know the phrase. I didn't know it was a band.
1: Well then, okay, moving on. <laughs> Under the direction of David Lynch, the shooting script was largely ignored. They rewrote scenes on the spot as they filmed them. Oh. The cast reports that they were all on edge eagerly asking Lynch what's next as he worked off an outline in his head and less off the actual script Frost and Peyton and the others had worked on. Mark Frost said, quote, I've never questioned David's vision at any point in the process because his, stings, his instincts are extraordinary. We knew it was going to be the last one, possibly of all time, and I think I remember saying, do whatever you want to do here. Use this as a map, not a set of directions. And he did. And when you've got a talent as singular as David, you don't question that. That would make no sense whatsoever. Uh, Wyndham Earls actor Kenneth Walsh says at one point David Lynch had told him to forget what had been written in the script and instead push Annie's face into the glass window and scream, Eight rainbow trout, and hold the flashlight over his face and then hers when she speaks. It was not in the script originally. (laughs) Walsh describes the filming of the last episode as whimsical and a lot of fun. Uh. Philip Seagal, former ABC programming director, said... I just laughed at it because it laughed at us, referring to ABC. It made a mockery of us. It made a mockery of the television viewing audience when you think about it. It was so ridiculous. There was a part of me that thought it was brilliant and refreshing because it broke the rules and was so avant-garde. And there's a part of me and part of the network that felt betrayed and felt this wonderful opportunity to keep something brilliant alive had just been destroyed by its creators. (laughs) Harley Payton, quote, My memory is that I came into work and I basically said to Mark, look, this is how this should end. It's gotta be Cooper gets out of the lodge and Mark completes the sentence and says, Cooper looks in the mirror and sees Bob. And we said, yeah, that's gotta be it. Oh. Big if true, right? If that's, if Harley Payton's memory is correct, that Harley Payton and and, uh, Mark Frost just had that sort of psychic link in that moment.
0: I mean, we could say that That's the fun thing. It's like, do we read this as the psychic link that that was going to be the end of the sentence? Or is it the point that Mark Frost finished the sentence and then Harley Payton was like, yeah. And just like was like carried away with the idea.
1: Because those are two, I think it was two of the three that are principally known for the script. And then Lynch would then rework it, rehash it, improv and do weird things with the script afterward. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I want to talk about are some of the changes that were made from the script to, that we know of to the end product. Okay. Um, this is courtesy of the Twin Peaks Wiki. And there's quite a bit here I'm going to highlight. If at any point you want to jump in, feel free. Okay. So the credited writers for this episode are Mark Frost, Harley Payton, and Robert engels Holy Trinity of season two, right? Oh. And Twin Peaks in general outside of Lynch. Oh. However, David Lynch revised their script significantly without the credit. He isn't credited technically, but he did do it. Maintaining the episode's general structure, but altering much of the dialogue in many scenes, Lynch also added more characters to the episode, some of whom had not been seen in the series for some time. The Log Lady and Ronette Pulaski were not in the original script. Hmm. He added the Log Lady and Ronette to the last episode, which I find very significant, especially for Ronette. Yes. As mentioned before. In the original script, Doc Hayward shoves Ben during their altercation, who then strikes his head against a coffee table. Not the fireplace. Oh, and it's at that point that Doctor Hayward is nervous, distraught, and he rushes to Ben's aid to help him and apologizes. In the shot version, he's just he is swailing, not apologizing, like yelling. It just ends on the dark note of Ben and like Ben in agony on the floor, possibly dead, and Doc Hayward like freaking out. Yeah, and- but not helping or apologizing. That's a pretty notable tone difference
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the script. Hawk and Major Briggs find Leo Johnson in Windermurl's cabin. That's already a big thing right there. Yeah. Leo instinctively begins to speak when he sees them, which sets off the spider trap set by Earl. Lynch replaced this with the scene in the Double R Diner featuring Bobby, Shelley, Major Briggs, Mrs. Briggs, Dr. Jacoby, and Sarah Palmer, and Heidi, the German waitress. <laughs> so again, Heidi wasn't in the script originally. I don't think Sarah Palmer was. And that scene where I'm in the Black Lodge of Dale Cooper with Jacoby and Sarah Palmer with Major Briggs yeah. wasn't in there. With the exception of Major Briggs, none of these characters appear in the original script. In the filmed episode, Leo is only seen briefly from footage from the previous episode, leaving his fate unresolved. If we go by the script being canon, Mark Frost, Harley Payton, and Robert Engels were going to have Leo set off the trap Who do and you die. think
0: would go hungry faster, Leo Johnson or a tarantula? Um, uh, what? What? I don't know. Like again, he's holding it up. He's got to like keep his consciousness for however long and hold it in with his teeth.
1: Who would die first? Depends on what. How much they ate prior? Had <laughs> had uh, either of them been freshly fed prior to the situation? Knowing when it's anyone's game. Yeah, I, I think that would be the main factor. What do you think of the idea though that? in the original script written by those three, Leo was for sure dead. And then in the final product, it was left unclear if Leo dies.
0: I think that it's does a lot, especially with how Leo acts towards the end, trying to save someone like Briggs in that moment for what passion is left inside of him and just leaving him there. I think it's much more powerful. Not knowing. I think that if I found out and saw it, it'd be like, Oh, well, Leo's dead. He's, I think he was given, kind of a dick.
1: I think to me it matters given the tone of that last episode. It ruins so many people and it leaves so many things unresolved that I think it just fits the tone of the last episode. I love the way it cuts though to Leo for that split second. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you agree or not, but to me there's a huge difference between nothing with Leo and that split second they ch- that Lynch still chose to include. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, I'm sure Leo's having a blast right now. And then it just hard cuts to Leo struggling for like a second and then goes back.
0: Again, I think that the mystery ends up outweighing answers yeah. in this case. In and this even case. if an answer does happen, like in The return, there's sure. a 25-year gap. I think that that's appropriate enough that yeah. you just can still feel that impact from the sure. original series.
1: In the script, Pete Martel does not accompany Andrew Packard into the bank. Instead, Get Catherine in there, die. Instead, Catherine rushes into the bank just before Andrew accidentally sets off the bomb. Catherine does not appear at all in the final version, and there's no script. Pete's only appearances in the sheriff's station at the beginning of the episode. So,
0: <laughs> again, canon or
1: not, canon or the n- original script version that again those other three had developed would have Catherine in the bank at the moment of the explosion, mm-hmm. seemingly to try to prevent it. She rushes into the bank. Okay. But we didn't get that.
0: It doesn't exist. It was shifted and changed, and that leads into all sorts of creative opportunities. It makes you wonder
1: why Lynch changed it. Why did he put Pete there instead? Makes you wonder.
0: Makes me wonder. Hey, are we of the same mind? Hey, 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 David Lynch, are
1: you on my side? In the script at the lodge's entrance, Sheriff Truman, this is, okay, I gotta let you just, for a moment, just like, let go of all your expectations right now. I'm about to say something wild. Okay. I, there is no context given on the wiki for this. I'm going to let I'm go of my
0: expectations, but I can't say the same thing. I'm going to spoil guy.
1: and say I still have no clue, knowing the return. I still have no clue what this means. In the script, at the lodge's entrance, Sheriff Truman sees a vision of a dark woman wearing a chainmail holding a sword and shield. No. Uh, like, I have no clue what this is referenced to. It is not a thing I am aware of in anything else. The
0: Bookhouse Boys.
1: Okay. Why is she in chainmail holding a sword and shield?
0: Well, for one, this this overall... I will be going deeper into things such as Welcome to Twin Peaks uh, very soon. So, but if I could show my hand a little bit. Uh, the Circle of Trees, though it is a different list of trees still regardless, a Circle of Trees found out here not only sort of harkens to the Bookhouse Boys, in which like they literally have like a tree with a sword onto their patch, uh, rituals that are done outside of here with the Bookhouse Boys... But we can also say for the Knights and King Arthur around the table most notably Sycamore this Christian iconography having something of a sudden appearance of a warrior potentially a holy warrior in mm-hmm. this overall chainmail bearing a sword mixing both bookhouse iconography as well as the Christian iconography used I believe that that's just a presence or a sign mm. either a calling to action or Or be something for Truman to sort of consider in his own moment of having to defend what's about
1: to come. Well, Lynch considered it and decided not to keep it. Okay. Do you like that decision? I mean,
0: I don't know. Like, is (laughs) this this like a new character?
1: Imagine everything else in the episode is exactly the same. Yes. But when Harry Truman is just waiting for Cooper... At one point, he sees a vision of a woman wearing chainmail with a sword and shield. Nothing else changes. How do you feel about that?
0: (laughs) I feel like if it had existed enough, it might have... It would have taken away from, like, the malaise that we see Truman being Mm -hmm. in. And I think that the snappiness of it matters enough that having a strange moment sort of, like, breaking up into that, it kind of pushes a interaction that what does Truman do here from now and if he does nothing what does that say about Truman
1: I ultimately agree in the sense that I think Truman just sitting and waiting and just waiting and just waiting and just waiting and there's nothing else going on I think matters yes Even though I would love to see how this would be executed, I'd love to see how Lynch would do this. Mm. And then I would love to see that parallel universe where fans are just constantly speculating about that. Because if there's no context, they just do that, you know fans would go running wild with that image. I think that the the most
0: sad part about this is that if it is like this is the day of and script things are being changed. (laughs) That means that there's potentially a new character. Someone who came up on to set is like, yeah, oh boy, (laughs) I get to work today. I get to be part of Twin Peaks. And he's like, ah, no. (laughs) (laughs) What?
1: That'd (laughs) be very funny.
0: And sad. No. And sad. Yes, sad. I'll accept sad.
1: The sequences in the Black Lodge are almost entirely different from the original script. Wyndham Earl has much more dialogue in the original script. There was no backwards talking. Laura Palmer only appeared for an instant and doesn't speak in the original script. The Black Lodge singer, the man from their place, the giant, the waiter, Maddie, and Leland were not in the script. Wyndham Earl's fate is less abrupt, too. He would have ended up shackled to a dentist chair with Bob as the torturer. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Lynch chose the right things in every single one of those categories. I think Lynch choosing to have Wyndham Earl with the fire out of his head with the weird screaming in Bob was much better than the dentist chair thing. No. As funny as the dentist chair thing is, (laughs) I feel like it's a a meme sound. It sounds kind of silly.
0: Someone rented a dentist chair that did nothing other than sit in storage. Also, I can't
1: imagine, like, no Maddie, no Leland, and then none of the spirits, like... I can see why. Like, here's my None of these
0: spirits, though. I can see why, because the thing is, is that what we got was so much thrown at us at once. Mm -hmm. It's pure chaos in the Red Room. Everything is going wild enough inside of this journey and having someone like Dale Cooper wandering around near silently. It is a series of feelings that kind of transcends being on paper. There's a level of insight that I'm thoroughly impressed with. And this is
1: where I think, if you're going to credit Lynch with anything, this is a moment of pure Lynch. This is Lynch. Like, I think he just saw the script and was like, no.
0: As far as... We're doing it
1: this way. On
0: paper, again, I think that these individuals are very talented on what they've done. I'm not going to discredit that. But this seems to be leveling on the mysterious end, in which it's more of the quiet mysterious. There's still strange things going on, but it's paced out enough from what sounds like for the characters we Mm -hmm. consider being inside there that it becomes more tense... With uh, the silence of it.
1: Yeah, I feel like sometimes I can come across as critical of Lynch, and this is where, again, I'll I'll, I'll celebrate him a little bit, is that if you watch this Red Room stuff and it really sinks its teeth into you, it's hard to find a director who's able to do that the way Lynch does. Lynch is able to channel these sort of feelings in a way that is hard to find with other filmmakers. Mm -hmm. When it comes to creating the sense of dread or intensity or just complete Mm non-comprehension from relatively mundane things. He's able to just imbue so much chaotic uncertainty with so simple things. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite effective for those, for those again, it's effective too. Mm -hmm. If you watch this and you just think, Oh, that's weird. And that's all (laughs) you feel. Then Lynch is probably not going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. But I, I think if it clicks with you, That kind of emotional storytelling, spiritual storytelling, it's hard to find someone up there with Lynch. Um, And that's where, again, I'll give him that credit. Good. The revelation at the end of the episode, uh, where Cooper is now uh, presumably inhabited by Bob or however you want to interpret that, is more subtle than the original script. In the original version, Cooper squeezes the toothpaste onto his toothbrush, looks to the mirror and smiles. Oh,
0: dentist chair. Using tooth... You <laughs> could do something with that. You could do something with that.
1: Looks to the mirror and smiles, and Bob's reflection is smiling back, and the episode ends. In the Lynch version, Cooper squeezes the toothpaste, sees the Bob reflection, smashes his in the mirror, and says, how's Annie repeatedly? It's
0: much more bold. It's
1: with this. much more bold, and I think it's also more open to interpretation, because when he smashes his head in the mirror, it leaves that doubt, in my, at least in my mind, of like, was that smashing of the mirror some part of cooper trying to fight back no this is
0: like outright confirming nope this is this is a wild ride throughout that's uh, i let me rephrase this because now i'm going into the pure end of emotion if it ends quickly and we just stop if you will as soon as the reflection goes plenty to play with the imagination But overall is a very light ending. I think that also reflects on what happens in the Red Room in the original script. Mm -hmm. But to, like, take the head and bash it against it, there's hardly any sort of question that Bob is fully present there. Yeah. It's, even if we say, like, maybe Coop is fighting back and, like, he's striking against it, this is not a usual Coop reaction. Right. This is... As he quickly topples onto the floor in Fire Walk with Me, oh, missing, uh, pieces. missing pieces. Thank you. Uh, this is not a usual reaction. Even when he speaks so stale to stale Truman, Dale. <laughs> to both uh, Truman as well as Doc Hayward, mm-hmm. everything becomes not what it seems. And I think that taking the bolder approach makes for a better feel for It's
1: such a mic drop ending.
0: It is. No, it's not a mic drop. That's a mic throw. The and mic th- hits it <laughs> and it bounced a few times. And then the
1: way instead of the credits being like normal on the, just the still image, it's the coffee with uh with Laura's image reflected in the, the coffee. Yeah. So good. Um now that we've kind of gone through all of this, you you've mentioned before some potential expectations you might have for what character threads or story threads would be brought back in the return. Are there any other things you want to say about your expectations for either the David Lynch films, the Secret History Twin Peaks, slash Final Dossier, or Hmm. The Return? Anything else? Just so that the listeners know your headspace and they can laugh at you later about it.
0: (laughs) If there's one thing that I'm prepared for going forward, even just like mildly looking and flipping through the pages of, additional Twin Peaks content and readying myself for the return. I, my headspace is that I'm going to be thoroughly lost, but in the best way. Okay. I'm going to look at a situation. I'm going to do my best to dissect it, but I think I'm going to go into crazier levels than I have between like Maddie and Laura.
1: And why do you think that is?
0: From what I've understood from these bold moves, done by, say, for example, David Lynch. Mm -hmm. For what I am seeing from the general writing patterns of people such as Mark Frost, is that on David Lynch's side, it's going to be what is going to be making sense emotionally because I think that a lot of what David Lynch does handles itself in that emotional realm. I think that a lot of what we saw in the final episode is not going to be most tangibly expressed through, yes, A equals B because of C, but a wild equation that you're only going to be able to feel out and come out with all sorts of wild speculation. With Mark Frost, I've seen enough that there's going to be plenty to chew on as far as the layers go, and even a little bit into secret history on how it sort of flirts with things of the past that I'll be able to put some of the pieces together, but I feel that I'll be overall lost in the ideas of the lore that it's going to be a labyrinth that it will be a labyrinth for its own entertainment. It is something that, I do not feel he is going to be, and I could be wrong, but I feel like he's not going in for the sake of answers, but more so expanding on the questions.
1: Mm -hmm. Lynch, you're referring to.
0: Uh, No, actually, Mark Frost. Mark Frost. Yes.
1: The thing with The Return is that, directing-wise, it is 18 episodes of only Lynch directing. In terms of the writing is where it gets a little bit confusing, Lynch and Frost collaborated on the original drafts of the script. They, like, did a lot of stuff over Skype, actually. And then Mark Frost got his two books, which I still suspect might have been one at one point because the second one is much shorter. Okay. And then Lynch, you know, released the return. I still do wonder and still suspect that the return is far more Lynch in the writing than Frost.
0: For what he's willing to do, especially with these three people who have been taking up the helm for a lot and twisting enough of the script, I'd be surprised if uh, how like much of the original Skype conversation there was. I believe that there might be leads onto it. I mm-hmm. think that there's respect between these two enough to say, no, these are some great ideas. I'm going to put in my feelings now into this. Yeah. And this is the product that comes through.
1: I think Lynch had his own M.O., Mean, His own well, modus operandi.
0: Yes, again, I think that I can get lost into the details brought in by Mark Frost, but I'll be lost in the emotion with David Lynch, and I think that playing that little balancing game inside of my own head, I'm thoroughly excited for for what mm-hmm. my mind may outlandishly deliver. Maybe it'll be clear cut, guys. Maybe, maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna be able to find the answer, of Twin Peaks, but I doubt it.
1: Okay. I do have a wonderful and strange question of the week.
0: Okay, so, um, but in the meantime, I suppose it's best to say, uh, this is between you and me, of course, so Mm -hmm. I think that's best that we say goodbye to my guest, uh, the Unplugged Professor. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to being on the show, uh, and I look forward to checking out more of your content over at the YouTube page of Snake Eye Dreams, over on the Spotify page of Snake Eye Dreams, on the Google Playlist of Snake Eye Dreams, and the Twitter of Snake Eye Dreams. Otherwise, uh, thank you very much, and have a good night. Thank you very much. Good job. Good job. This is All right, I believe I'm mentally ready.
1: My wonderful and strange question of the week is I went through a lot of trivia today in this episode. Yes, you did. What piece of information did you learn or kind of gauge realizations? What piece of trivia struck you the most today? Now, granted, something might resonate more in a week from now, but in this moment, which thing In this moment
0: of this podcast that, in the recording before editing things down, is nearing five hours.
1: We did do this in two sittings. We did do this in two sittings, that is... Hopefully so seamless you couldn't even tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, And listeners, we know this is a long episode. I said to the professor, like, in advance, like, this is one where it's just gonna be long. And I'm okay with that. I I I feel like if you stuck it out for this five hours, like... Honest to goodness, like, thank you for being our number one favorite people on this planet.
0: Yes, number one favorite. More people.
1: than our family and friends. Aww. More than all the gods and all the devils.
0: Okay, I'll accept that. One. Okay,
1: cool. More than, more than your cat Stella.
0: She's in within earshot. I do not want to say anything positive or (laughs) negative for fear of our own well-beings. But no, sincerely,
1: we made this thinking that, yeah, if you want a long piece of Twin Peaks media to put on the background while you're cooking, while you're cleaning, while you're driving, this is what it's for. In the future, I don't think we'll have too many five-hour episodes Watch me like completely be wrong.
0: Let's. I look forward to the our book talks, our little little book conversations.
1: But but again, thank you for. I, I didn't want to be. I was going to be sarcastic, like putting up with us. But at this point, thank you for listening.
0: <laughs> thank you, genuinely. It's such a treat to do this on a biweekly basis, whenever uploading, but also whenever we get a chance to sit down and just talk a lot. I. I'm an advocate for longer things. So genuinely Khalil, this has been an amazing time. Mm -hmm. I am very thankful because I have loved this whole entire endeavor and I would probably do it again twice as long and you would die.
1: (laughs) And, and at this point, like we're, we're a small, relatively small podcast and there's a lot of great twin peaks podcasts out there. And we don't make like a profit off of this at the moment. We're just kind of doing it as a passion project. Mm -hmm. So I would say for myself, and Professor, you're free to say if you agree or disagree. For me, the most satisfying, or at very least one of the most satisfying, but probably the most satisfying part of doing this podcast is hearing questions, comments, and feedback from audience mm-hmm. members.
0: Audience members, including the Unplugged Professor, but especially those that we ended up hearing through, uh, and I do uh, see that overall. I hope that it shows that we do very much check out the comments. We love checking out any sort of email responses. We may not always yeah, know what to
1: say, but we are listening.
0: <laughs> we are. We are. So. We
1: greatly appreciate that, and again, just because this window of you know, questions is over, doesn't mean you should hold back. If you ever got anything you want to say, please say Thanks. it at our faces no, or, or ov- emails.
0: No, overall, I am, I've am i really enjoyed the interactions and just the expanded dialogue that we've gotten from insights as well as curiosities from you guys, so thank you so much.
1: And hopefully there's something for you in the, the coming weeks. I know that a lot of people want us to get to the return all in due time, but hopefully with the Lynch films and the... Side content, we can encourage you to check out some things that maybe you haven't checked out ever or at least in a while. That's kind of one of my hopes because, like, I have never read My Life, My Tapes, or Diane. This podcast is giving me a reason. You can read Diane.
0: It's on cassette. And it's listening audiobook.
1: reading, you know. Yeah. My point is, though, is that I hope that just like it's encouraging me to check it out for the first time, And check, obviously, the professor's first time checking it out. I hope that some (laughs) of you might also take this as an opportunity to try out some new Twin Peaks things.
0: Explore the things. Like, we've said only so much, and we've been wrong multiple times in the past. So, uh, I'd say that if you are willing to have enough of a fun adventure joining us along for this podcast, if you have the opportunity and the means to do so, I would say absolutely treat yourself to some of the hidden corners, if you will. Some of the extra bits that... The hidden
1: corners where the tasty pots are.
0: (laughs) Where you may not be able to see what things should be or what they seem to be, but there's some very genuinely fantastic things out there that I'm very glad that we are exploring.
1: It's like the bottom of the gummy, gummy worm bag when it gets like heated and all the gummy worms start melding together into like one goo, one chunky goo. It may not be the prettiest thing, still delicious. Assuming it's a vegetarian gummy worm, No, no, no gelatin product.
0: So whether or not you enjoy a, the Twin Peaks goo at the bottom of the bag or this podcast that is goo at the bottom of the bag, Khalil, you had a question. Oh yeah, I, I bought that,
1: you a lot of time to think about your answer. Oh, you did, you did. So I'm sure you were thinking about it. What <laughs> piece of trivia struck you the most today? Again, probably
0: just because on the bias of just most recent memory, I'll fully accept that. It is the amount of passion that I've seen in some characters, especially in individuals such as Nadine. Like mm-hmm. the passion put behind by some of the actors and what they are willing to throw into the character and how much thought was thrown into that same character. Mm-hmm. The boldness of some people, such as John Renault's actor, saying, This character has this because I know for a fact. I'm very much a yes and person whenever it comes to things such as acting. Mm-hmm. And when someone tells me something is like, Oh, that's a let's try it out. It might be a new fun idea. But to have people be bold enough to say no this this is how this should go. I'm thoroughly impressed on, though <laughs> I don't know how many people it might be appropriate to be impressed on that. And lastly, the willingness of s- some individuals, especially David Lynch in the last episode, to remold things into something that I believe becomes a greater whole. Whether the gamble of it all could have been worth it in the moment or be emotionally taxing to people. I am very happy with what Twin Peaks became with these elements. I don't even want to say despite these elements because, again, it's a gamble. It is thoroughly engaging yourself in a moment in a medium and through the efforts of so many... We see what sort of comes out of it at the end of the day, post editing, post these risks, post whatever efforts are either used or not used. And here we are with this tapestry that inconsistent at times, flawed at times, I still find beautiful. Very beautiful.
1: Thank you, Professor. <laughs> so to end this episode, I have an idea, I have a suggestion. Very well. Uh, I would like to do a rendition of Mersey Dotes with you. The Leland, uh, famous performance of Leland.
0: Now, are you saying that you want us to sing it around the same time at same tempo? Uh, what, what do you want from this?
1: Um, I feel like you're more musically inclined. What do you think would be best? I'm I'm looking at those first four, like the main four lines right now. I
0: am musically inclined in the respect that I enjoy making sounds with my mouth. Uh, If you want to hear someone sing as if they are enjoying karaoke in their spare time after a few drinks, I am excited to do so. I
1: have no singing talent or experience whatsoever. I think we should try to sing at the same time and see how bad this can go. Oh, Mary's doats and dozy doats and little lambsy divey, a kiddly davy davy to one new. Yes, maze doats
0: and dozy doats a little diddly dandy, a kiddly divy, divy, divy to one oh, yes, new. Here we go!
1: Wouldn't you?
0: I would.